0: Good evening, and welcome to the grand opening of our new railway station. As one of the features of the celebration, we are offering a prize to the person who can guess the number of bodies which will be found in these lockers during the first week of operation. Station lockers seem to be a favourite spot to check one's friends. It's much more tidy than having them lay around the house. In this connection, we have a very interesting feature. Our architect thought of everything. Just on the possibility that bodies might not be discovered as quickly as they should, all the lockers are refrigerated. I knew you'd like that. Now that I have given you that chilling thought, we should best be getting on with the
1: principal business of the evening.
0: Welcome to the Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the Master of Suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. Um, This is the first episode we have recorded since the world uh, decided to stop all of a sudden. uh, It really wasn't all of a sudden. We should have seen it coming. I mean, shouldn't we see... We saw some foreshadowing happening, you know, like some movie movie notions that were pre-warning us that, hey, something bad might happen. But, alas, we're here. yeah, we're still in the middle of um uh the COVID-19 outbreak. Um we're uh here in Colorado we're moving to safer at home. Uh but we are trying our best to limit the contact that we have with each other as much as possible. Um here at the Shanley Silhouette, thankfully we have plenty of options in terms of how to get guests on board and also to record those in the best quality imaginable. Um obviously going forward, not every episode's going to sound super awesome because of the uh teleconference that we're going to have to utilize in order to continue the show uh but we're going to keep it going uh and uh consequently COVID-19 has also created an issue with um the original intended end date of this series I was originally planning to end it in July not too long after the first episode had dropped last year um and consequently uh, lives ha- have been shifted around Mine included um, I had to reassess my employment situation As well as uh, Making sure that uh, people who were going to be on board Were still on board and giving them time to adjust um, So that being said uh, This is the first of a couple of different ones We're recording uh, to get us to the end point um, We're going to have plenty of discussions About Hitch obviously uh, We're going to do our best to tackle What we can to get us to the end point point. Um, For any of the films that we don't cover, I am going to be doing an appendices after the final episode, and it'll be consistent of some mini uh, reviews of Hitch films that we didn't get to cover in detail so that you don't feel like you've been cheated too much. Um, And who knows? Shamley silhouette may come back around as a different uh, thing for Hitchcock, where we get to examine, examine those films even more deeply. Um, But, the goal of The Shamley Silhouette was to examine the different facets of Hitchcock, his themes, his motifs, uh, certain trends in his films, and also talk a little bit about Hitch himself. The coming episodes you're going to hear uh, will consist of some more discussions of Hitch's misfires, but also covering his British period, so they're kind of be in tandem a little bit and we'll be doing that with Marshall Rosales uh we're going to do an episode on Ingrid Bergman and her collaboration with Hitch, which will have our guest uh or our returning first guest ever, Ryan Frost to come on board and talk about the legacy of the Bergman Hitchcock collaboration um, I'm going to have Henry on for another episode. It's still to be determined. I will be getting Brad on for an episode uh whether that comes in the middle of the series or after the series is still to to be determined. Um, As this has been focusing mainly on the films, um, it might be a situation where we do it afterwards in an appendices. Um, And then we're also going to be talking about Marnie. That will be an episode. Uh, And uh, right now it looks like Jack Hanley is going to be coming on board to discuss that with us as soon as we get his schedule figured out. And then I'm going to announce it here on our final episode. We were very, very lucky uh, in March to speak with not on, none other than the host of The Secret History of Hollywood and Attaboy Clarence, Adam Roach, uh, who will be coming to your earbuds to talk a little bit about his journey with Hitch and then also to just talk about Hitchcock in general and wrap this sucker up. Um, but on to today's show. Uh, so we've been talking a lot about different facets of uh, Hitchcock and his movies, uh, different themes, different motifs. Uh, Amongst the things that he helped kind of pioneer for a mainstream audience is noir, whether it's his beginnings in uh, the silent film era, working with German expressionism and high dense shadows in order to create menace uh, within a situation or just dealing with the seedy material that he had dealt with over the course of his entire career Um, in episode eight um, or episode seven. I should say we discussed. Uh, Amongst other things, the legacy of Hitchcock through four different films that covered uh, his angle on the serial killer and the psychopath. Um, But Hitchcock made two films not too far apart from each other uh, that tackled the murderer or the psychopathic killer, but from a very different stanza point. In fact, it dealt mainly with its intrusion on hometown America and just common America in general at the time. Uh, in 1943, he started out by terrorizing a town called Santa Rosa, California. And then in 1951, he took it all the way to the capital of the United States of America. I speak, of course, of 1943 Shadow of a Doubt and 1951 Strangers on a Train. And here to discuss this with me as a returning guest. You know him. You love him. You can't get enough of him. And this is a film that he talked about in his first appearance as something he'd want to talk about, we're strangers on a train. So we're not only going to talk about that, but we're going to also throw a new curveball at him. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back Aaron Pendergast.
2: Hey, Zach, thanks for having me back. You're Hopefully alive. people aren't tired of hearing from you. You're alive. No, I, I'm glad to hear from you. <laughs> I am. I'm here. I still, <laughs> it's a, it's a I'm weird. still somehow, somehow breathing.
0: <laughs> somehow breathing. How have you been keeping up through everything?
2: You know, pretty good. Uh, we, I think, are, are fortunate compared to a lot of people. Uh, my wife and I are both able to continue working on a remote capacity, and um, so that's keeping us busy, but we also live in a very tiny condo, so that is less ideal.
0: Oh, yeah, so this so this is turning into a rope situation. One of you is going to kill the other one, stuff it in a, a a chest in the living room, and then you'll have friends over when the quarantine breaks, and then one of them will be Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Um, and... uh, no comment <laughs> no comment oh 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 wow I, I I was able to read into your mind a lot more than I thought I would be able to <laughs> <laughs> so um, we're gonna be talking about obviously um, Hitchcock kind of diving into hometown America and um or the heartland of America even and kind of how he angles in on that now you had seen strangers on a train prior what was your initial reaction when you first saw that movie
2: strangers on a train oh gosh um you know, I, I've always liked noir films. Um, and given that it is in that, that vein, um, I really enjoyed it, uh, particularly, and this is, I mean, this comes up in, um, um, sorry, <laughs> <Are you okay? laughs> a shadow of a doubt. Sorry. My, my brain's slow today. Yeah. Um, it, both, I mean, just lighting techniques, you know, that's, I really like noirs for the, the hard shadows, the, the bright highlights. Um, it's one of those things for me, lighting in a movie makes or breaks it and bad lighting is, is bad. Um, what's <laughs> funny with noir films is the lighting is so exaggerated. It doesn't look natural, but it's also, uh, when done well, I enjoy the look of it, even though it's not natural. Yeah. Uh, whereas in other situations where you do that, it, it doesn't work at all and it bothers me. So, um, yeah, that movie in particular, I really like that. And I also just kind of enjoyed the, um, happen, you know, this happened, a uh, random encounter that turns into this, you know, much larger thing, mm-hmm. um, hard to believe, but also makes for a great story. So,
1: yeah,
0: it, it's, it's a story that, um, based, based on Patricia Highsmith's book, by the way, that, um, that I think, uh, taps into, uh, the, the, the most simple fears and paranoias we can possess is just some random stranger is going to ruin your life all of a sudden. Um, and it's uh, it, de- it definitely it's a film that when you go back to it and we'll talk about it further, obviously, later in the episode. But, you know, it's a it's a film that I think still strikes a chord despite being a little more dated. And what's interesting is how much it holds up. Like so, uh, many of the films we've discussed on this podcast do have elements that date themselves more often than not. And I think that this one uh, in particular has a lot of elements that. Prevent it from aging too bad, like even psycho you know there's different things that age it, whether it's the amount of money that they're uh that's being embezzled, or if it's just the fact that motel uh, motel off the highway and stuff like that, and just like how frequently are people seeing at motels as opposed to maybe a bed and breakfast um, but strangers on a train you know we've still got a we still got a local light rail line
2: like
0: feasibly you could do this story with public transportation so right
2: well um, and even with you know the mention that it's in the nation's capital i mean dc has one of the best subway systems in the us so yeah. even even that alone like it's not a traditional train but it's the same kind of concept so i think it uh, it does do well to be set in that environment
0: yeah and and on top of that many of the different facets that we'll discuss like they don't they, they the motivations and the even the psychological elements still hold up pretty well uh as compared to some that grew over time in order to address specifics um and then you were saying to me before you started the show um, I don't want to out you here but you hadn't seen shadow of a doubt up till this point
2: that is correct yeah i i will admit like i've I've enjoyed Hitchcock's films that I've seen, but I would never claim to have seen all of them or even a significant percentage of them. But um, (laughs) you motherfucker, (laughs) I, I, why, why do
0: you do this? Why, why don't you watch good movies?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, but to that end, yeah, it it was interesting to watch, um, you know, uh, to see one that I had not seen before, uh, and looking at it from with that kind of more critical eye, because a lot of these I'd seen when I was. You know somewhat younger and and interested in film but not really like you know to an extent a lot of the hitchcock i saw was before i even knew i was gonna have an interest in being a filmmaker so my perception of it in that context was different than it is now yeah no Um, which you know it, it changes how you look at a movie i think
0: oh it definitely does i mean like when you're a kid and you're watching something like psycho or strangers on a train even like you're you're terrified of Robert Walker or Norm or Anthony Perkins and stuff. And then as you get older, you start seeing the different character twitches that they add to it to make them uh, like deeper than they probably would under any other director or any other screenplay. Um, so, you know, like the, the, the mood changes. So it's actually good that you sh- saw shadow of a doubt at the time that you did, because I didn't see it until college. Um, this is one that I didn't watch early, early on. Um, And it's it's it was one that I watched once. I liked it a lot, but I mainly liked it for watching more Joseph Cotton. And because I was really into Orson Welles at that point in college. Um, And as I've gotten older and rewatched it, it's it's a film that sticks with me as a great like it's 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 almost a primarily perfect Hitchcock movie because it's utilizing nearly every one of his best tricks within the scope of one film um uh i mean it doesn't it doesn't have the same crew as say the films of the 50s where you have you know robert burke or edith head and uh, bernard herman but it 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 possesses the 40s version of that which is utterly fascinating and um, and strangers on a train is one that i saw early on and like it was just it was one that was not one of my favorites but then as i like it's like shadow of doubt as i've grown older it's become one that's Utterly fascinating to re-examine and explore, not just from the Hitchcock angle, but also from the noir angle. Because the thing is, is that Hitchcock had made a lot of films similar to the noir vein, but these two are specifically designed in that noir feel and style. Um, The shadows are harsh. the, 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 The circumstances are very seedy and underbelly. And they're all taking place under the veneer of what seems, uh, to be the American norm. And that, that's something that is very prevalent in post-war, uh, post-war era filmmaking when a lot of noir is coming out, whether it's your dumb, double indemnity or, you know, half the stuff that Bogart was able to do when he wasn't working with John Huston specifically. Uh, so it's, it's, these two are going to be interesting to talk about, um, so with that in mind, we're going to jump right in um, and uh, just talk about these two films back to back and kind of talk about how they it's weird because Shadow of a Doubt and Strangers on a Train mirror each other in in interesting ways, um, not just from the visual motif, but also from thematic stuff. Um, so we're going to jump right into it with Shadow of a Doubt in 1943, directed by the guy we've been talking about for how many episodes now <laughs> Um Uh, uh, Made on Universal's dime um, during the time that he was under contract to Selznick. Selznick, uh, as we have been discussing, loaned him out a bunch uh, because Selznick couldn't um, necessarily complete any projects he wanted to, so he would make a tidy buck off of uh, loaning out his talent to other studios. Uh, Hitchcock, absolutely one of them. Um, And uh, so it's produced by Jack H. Skirbel. Um, And the screenplay, screenplay is a very fascinating situation. So the story comes from Gordon McDonald, um, who was the husband of uh, the head of uh, David O. Selznick's story department. Uh, And so they got the story from them um, and they took it over to Universal um, and loaned out Hitch. uh, And the screenplay... Uh, was given a a, a thorough run around by none other than Thornton Wilder uh who if you don't know who Thornton Wilder is but you've seen Our Town now you know who wrote Our Town so <laughs> uh like the classic example of small town America on the stage um and by all accounts Thornton Wilder and Hitch uh got along famously and there was n- no interference uh, no disturbance. There was no disagreement over what this is. Basically, Hitchcock uh, and him saw eye to eye on how to bring the menace into small town America, which at the time had not really been thoroughly examined. Now, when we talk about menace in film, we usually think of it within an urban setting, within the city, um, but rarely had it been brought into. The, uh, the, the more quieter towns of America this is like prior to the like suburban expansion so a lot of these stories never really went past you know New York City or even Los Angeles so this is an interesting set, setting and tone for it and getting somebody like Wilder really helps that scenario uh, they bring on an additional writer Sally Benson and Alma Revel uh, coming in to fully shape this script um, Hitchcock has called this film his favorite that he's made. And I think it's primarily because of, uh, one is Pat Hitchcock is correct when she says that he, he definitely likes bringing that menace into a small town. Like he liked that concept and that idea. But I think it's also, he, it looks like this is one of those films where he had very little trouble, uh, making the film. Like there was very little, um, I- interference, uh, like r- rarely was something not going his way, um, and you know it, he he values his wife immensely, and so to have her working directly on a screenplay, and I'm sure that thrilled him to no end. Um, and amongst other things, you get the introduction of some people that would you know go on to work with Hitch uh, further. Um, we have returning um, to the art department is Robert Boyle. Uh, And then we have Dimitri Tjomkin doing the score um, with additional work by Franz Lehar. Um, And we get the introduction of Hume Cronin in this movie, not just to Hitchcock's oeuvre, but also to film in general, because up till then he had not been in a film. Um, But the uh, the uh, main build stars of this film will go down the the docket here. Teresa Wright, Joseph Cotton, McDonald Carey, Patricia Collins, Patricia Collins. And Henry Travers. So there's a lot of um, uh, very high class talent working on this project. Uh, Joseph Cotton in particular, um, a friend to the Hitchcocks, uh, Cotton was best known for working with that other fat director. You know who I mean.
2: <laughs> and uh, Joseph Cotton is great in this movie. Oh, he's fantastic. He's Yeah, he is oh. so good.
0: Talk about a guy who, two years prior in Citizen Kane, playing the very lovable and sympathetic Jebediah as now suddenly this enormous monster, like just an (laughs) enormous monster, Uh, like the scary thing under your bed. That is uncle Charlie. Um,
2: And we'll see. And it's, it's also um, like a lot of Hitchcock stuff based on a true story uh, that someone wrote a, you know, nine page outline for basically. And then they expanded on it, Um, which I think is part of my, Enjoyment of the film is I like everyone else in twenty twenty uh like true crime stuff, mm-hmm. and so taking you know a true crime thing and using it to inspire something in a fictional narrative uh landscape is is also something that is enjoyable because uh, then I dig into well what inspired it and what did this guy do you know so there's i think that adds like a layer of interest to it, at least for me personally. Yeah, Um, with this movie,
0: let's touch on that a little bit. So it's 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 partially based on the life of Earl Nelson, uh, known as the Gorilla Man, the Gorilla Killer, and the Dark Strangler. Um, He was um, uh, you know serial killer, Uh, and this is what's interesting is now we'll label this as a serial killer. At the time, films especially were not really labeling people like Mister Nelson as a serial killer. They'd call him a crazed murderer or. A maniac or something of that nature, but the term serial killer had not been um,
2: fully established. Yeah, um, I think that was what the eighties that they came up with that term.
0: More like like in the late mid to late seventies, early eighties, when you have Jack Douglas coming into the FBI to start doing his uh, criminal profiling stuff. Which uh, guys, if right. you're not watching Manhunter, watch Manhunter because I want a third season of Manhunter. <laughs> Man, <Manhunter. laughs>
2: it's really good.
0: David Fincher's Manhunter. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, much like our Uncle Charlie, many of Nelson's victims were middle-aged landladies who um, he would find through a room for rent. And then, um, you know, the crimes are very unspeakable. We're not going go f- to go too in- full into that. But the bottom line is, is that this is another situation where Hitchcock is taking uh, an influence on real life uh, and then transplanting it into a film prospect Um, And that's um, suffice it to say, the uh, the story that McConnell uh, was able to conjure up definitely falls into Hitch's uh, um, wheelhouse, to say the least. Um, But we'll jump right into the plot right now, because then because right off the bat, we're like from the opening credits on, we're treated to imagery that will permeate the film, which is the Merry Widow Waltz. Um, This this uh, this constant line of people in dress in the gay 90s dancing the night away under the merry widow waltz, which is a theme that constantly finds itself strewn about this film. And right off the bat, Hitchcock is setting up the motif of what's going on in Charlie's mind. So we're we're very clear on uh like even when we as we find out later on why charlie identifies with that imagery we're already being set up with a very interesting very different uh type of setup for a film which i don't think he even gets to do that much in opening credits at this point in his career
2: um i do really uh you know we're going to get into the plot but uh especially the beginning of this film um you see you know joseph cotton uncle charlie laying on a bed um this landlady comes in, lets him know some men were looking for him. And what I really like is this kind of intro setup. You know that he's done something, right? Yeah. People are looking for him. You don't know who they are. Um, you know, I was wondering, did he steal money? Did he kill somebody? What you know? And of course, he's the his landlady makes mention of the money laying around the room. Yeah, and we see which to me says see, you know yeah. he's he's probably stolen something. Um, so I didn't go. You know, your you're start, like, out of the gate, you're wondering what's up with this character. Yep. But because he's the first character you're introduced to, I even want to think, like, well, he's probably not a bad guy. <laughs> you know, like, that's kind of how I started it out was, like, well, he's ta- he's got this money, but maybe he stole it from bad people yeah you
0: know? you know he stole it from Charles Foster Kane after Charles Foster Kane fired him from the paper and that's why he's sitting around in a one boardroom house like you know I would be <laughs> pissed too. Um, um, <laughs> a, a toast Jebediah, to use sleeping in a one-bedroom apartment on my terms <laughs> um, but yeah no that opening image of him like and we use a lot of mirror imagery in this film, and that'll come into play here in a second. But that opening image, we show an insert of the money. We show an insert of his squalor. Prior to that, we're outside in an urban city. like So right off the bat, we're starting off in the place that crimes of this nature are normally supposed to be taking place in according to the cinematic language that we've been used to up to this point. So... We're starting off, like, you know, some kids in the street playing stickball, and, you know, that must have been fun for Hitchcock to direct stickball. Like, okay, you you go to that base there, you go to that base there, I play ball. Um, So, we're getting that imagery of Hitchcock dealing with what you're expecting, and then he's going to flip it on you. So... Uh, the landlady comes in. She informs him that two men were looking for for him, and he is already aware that he's being tailed. Like he already knows. Like he's he's done this before. So without knowing exactly what Charlie is guilty of, we know that something's up. Uh, so that's very much. But Hitchcock sets off uh, sets a lot of bombs under the table in this film, and this one in particular has a ton going on. Um, And he sets them up as early as this first scene. Something's up. Now we're going to have the suspense of what's going on um, that's going to come to a head by the close of the film.
2: So she's... And it's done very well because I I found myself, again, even like as a modern viewer, not knowing anything about the movie or seeing it before, Mm -hmm. um, constantly wondering well, what what did he do? Like what's going on? You know, and like hoping, like looking for clues and things to what it is before you find out. And really you don't find out until, um, young Charlie does, but we'll get into that.
0: Well, I'll tell you what he is, what he is thinking. He's thinking, man, I told this landlady to leave me alone and she will not leave me alone. (laughs) (laughs) She stays there. I, I noticed this, like upon viewing it today, she stays there longer then i remember each time cuz she's like it's like a good 1 to 2 minutes of her just repeating the same information now it works because you're setting up in the viewer's mind okay this is what charl th- like this is what charlie's dilemma is but she stays there so long and d- like she <laughs> at cer- at a certain point charlie gives up trying to get her to go away by saying yes i've got it yes i've got it by saying like you know what's interesting these two men uh, say they've been looking for me, but I've never met them. So he's already kind of telegraphing to the audience. Hey, you know, I'm not a great guy, (laughs) like, or at least people don't like me. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, the shades go down. Um, He's left in the room to think Uh, he, uh, he leaves the boarding house passes by the two people who are tailing him. And there's a POV shot earlier of him looking out the window and we see the people that are, uh, tailing him. Right. He goes past them and the two start tailing him. And for a good, I want to say a minute we're get, we're treated to some good old pure cinema from hitch where we see a essentially a chase sequence. And what's interesting about this film, outside of any other Hitchcock film you see in this period, I feel like he has much more control of what's going on. Um, I did not look into if this particular section was shot on a studio lot. It looks like it probably was um, as opposed to to the Santa Rosa stuff, but you can tell where something clearly had to be on a location. Uh, But he gets to do a lot of tricks that he would have otherwise done in a silent film where you, and just the, the, Tiomkin's score is really playing along to that silent film beat. So as as the two uh, detectives' feet move, the music moves. As Charlie moves, the music moves. So he's able to kind of play around with the silent film motif as long as he can in this movie. And he gets more opportunities than you'd expect, especially of a film of this era where dialogue is, you know, a little bit more prevalent than it it, it would essentially like you know it it's better to have a little more talking and get those actors engaging with each other but he manages to pull out a lot more silent film moments than you'd expect in this film
2: yeah definitely it's it's um interesting too cuz it it happens at a lot of different moments but it really adds to the um you know the the mystery and the tension of things when you have those
0: yeah absolutely and it gives, and it gives us again like we're we're telling not show or we're showing not telling so you know we we're, it's always a treat when we can get that with hitch so uh uh from there he sends a wire to um his sister uh in Santa Rosa, California and uh what i love about this moment is that as he's sending the telegram saying you know i'm going to arrive you know and uh don't try to tell me no you know i'll be i'll wire you with further instructions send it to Santa Rosa, California. Santa Rosa, California and then it fades to Santa Rosa, California. I like that kind of uh, transition. So we don't mm-hmm. need a Chiron. We don't need anything like that. It, the story is naturally moving it along with it. It's a little convenient, but at the time this must have been a very. Uh, uh, but uh, not, it's not even just it's standard. You can do this, but like it just it would feel a lot more natural because now we're suddenly away from the urban setting and now we're into Santa Rosa, this small town. This right. Like, you know, mom-and-pop shops everywhere, as far as the eye can see. The, the- it's a
2: really... And it's funny you mention it, because that's a really clever way of introducing it. And I didn't even think about it when it happened. But now that you're saying it, I'm like, oh, yeah, they did. He just kind of said, send it to Santa Rosa, and we transitioned. And I was like, this must be Santa Rosa. Like, it wasn't even a question of where <laughs> we are now, you know?
0: It's just like, no, this, no, this is where we are. Yeah, if they... Look, if they don't get it, that's their own fucking fault. I'm giving them virtually everything on a platter. <laughs> if they don't, I'm not going to put letters up there. I can't dumb down the audience. It's just not going to happen today. Um, so yeah, we're in Santa Rosa, California, and it's 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 a small town, It's small-town Americana. This is the Americana. A lot of people are wishing would come back. And you know, and you got a, you know, a a, a traffic guard in the middle of the street got people walking to and fro from their little shops, little towns. They got a little church there, um a First National Bank. Uh and we're whisked away into the home of the um of the Newtons. Um, we meet a lot of people at the Newton household. We should uh probably talk a little bit about each one of them. Uh we have of course uh Emma Newton, uh Charlie's um uh Charlie's sister and young Charlie's mother. Um, Played by Patricia Collins, who I think she gives a fantastic performance in this film as clearly a woman who uh, was a very was very clingy with her brother and uh, very uh, protective of Charlie. Uh, And we find out later a good portion of why that probably is. Um, so, but she's a little bit, um, aloof, I guess would be the terminology for it. So she's not like, she doesn't stand on her own two feet the way her daughter does.
2: Right. And I think it's an interesting use of character in, you know, the, uh, with the daughter, Charlie, um, young Charlie, or however we want to refer to her, um, <laughs> is, and I mean, we can get into this with comparisons later, but it's interesting, um, you know, when we're talking like what I like about Hitchcock's movies is the pro like the the main um, protagonist that drives the action um, is not always the same archetype.
0: Yeah. No, he, um, he switches it up a bunch.
2: Yeah. And so I do really enjoy, uh, you know, her character and, and the way she is established and played in this movie as being very strong and independent and verbose and. Having crazy ideas like telepathy and stuff um, (laughs) is, you know, and and it's great because a lot of people dismiss her, but it really is, um, you know, she does kind of have a better sense of what's going on.
0: There's there's definitely a uh, there's there's no confirmation of telepathy, but there's an allusion to it. Like Hitchcock's like, no, I'm not going to make a fucking mutant movie, but I want to allude to the fact that they could be mutants. I think that this would be very helpful in the future when some dork in New York makes a a, a comic book series about a man with Wolverine claws. I think I think we should give them a head start. What do you say, gentlemen? Um, uh, But so um, there's the father, Joseph Newton. um, uh, He's he's kind of nothing. But he's, he's, <laughs> I hate to say it, Henry Travers does really good with him. What's interesting, I shouldn't say he's nothing because he has a friend named Herbie Hawkins, played by the one and only Hume Cronin and what I love about it is that the father character in this film, if he didn't have a friend like Herbie, he'd be bored out of his mind throughout this entire movie because the majority of his shots uh show him befuddled, scared, or confused by Uncle Charlie. <laughs> Right. Uh, Just really trying to process the family dynamic between uh, Charlie and Emma. Um, But he he has his moments. Obviously, he's he's a doting father, an adorable father, Uh, so much so that his uh, youngest uh, his youngest daughter, Anne, does not understand him. In fact, Anne doesn't understand most people. She's very interested in books. She's very well educated for a person of her age. Uh, And she also knows that she doesn't want to be bothered by writing a telegram down for her family. Like, This isn't an (laughs) age before readily accessible voicemail or text message. You know, she clearly just didn't give a shit.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah, no, it is pretty funny. I tried
0: to find uh, a pencil, I swear.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That's funny because she's very, um, she seems very intelligent and very polite and very not like how I expect children to behave. Um, Yeah.
0: Unlike our our last episode that we discussed, precocious children. (laughs) right
2: (laughs) and so she seems very um it's just funny to me that yeah she couldn't be bothered to write down the message
0: yeah Um, but she's but she's very busy reading Ivanhoe obviously so you know I'm props to her I will say that Hitchcock tends to make the daughters in his films rather well-educated headstrong uh very like able to hold their own like and you can't tell me that Ann Newton is not the smartest person in the room you just can't tell me that she's not the smartest person she's the she up until up until charlie figures out what's going on she's the one who's sniffing out trouble first head on um so yeah, hats absolutely off. and uh, now her brother roger doesn't know um uh his ass from a hole in the ground he is just a regular good old american boy oh, who man. counts the steps from the drugstore to home <laughs>
2: Yeah, pretty much. We were, it it I, is funny. His his character is very much um, I, I am so peripheral. Like so, it is not.
0: Yeah, it's 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 basically us, Aaron. It's us yeah. as kids. Like <laughs> I'm so sorry that I had to bring you to another Hitchcock movie with an annoying boy. But
2: <laughs> here we are. It's alright. I honestly I didn't find him that annoying. I just found him be, to be very um, unnecessary. Isn't the word? But he he's very um, just you know, passive in everything that goes on. Yeah. He's present, but not like an active participant in any scene.
0: Yeah. The only time he gets close to it is with the paper scene. Uh, Outside of that, he's just saying facts that are good. Um, It's good filler to weave the conversations at the dinner table together.
2: (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But he's not like, I will say he is not as annoying as um, the, the brat we discussed in man who do too much from 1956. He is far from, Uh, giving anybody trouble if anything he's he's much more well-behaved by comparison (laughs) Uh, right so um but well and
2: i think in a, a way he kind of he shows us what um young charlie saw in uncle charlie when she was younger because obviously she knows him and she likes him as an uncle yeah and in this movie you can tell the the younger um brother is very um taken with uncle charlie and yes. and you know wants to sit with him and ride with him and all of that stuff and so i think that kind of um gives us insight into how she formed her perceptions of him yeah prior to this film
0: yeah young kid idolizing somebody that's not their parents and you know and it's i i so in a sense yes he is very much I would say it's the it's the most subtle allusion to that in the film because it's it's mm-hmm. rarely addressed. But if you're watching this film as many times as you are, you do see things like that. Um, and and in this case, yeah, it, it informs how somebody like Charlie Newton um, uh, would uh, idolize her uncle and idolize him so much that uh, she is going to run off and send a telegram to ask him to come to their small town and break the boredom. Um, well, let's talk about oh, it's Teresa Wright by the way who is a fantastic actress uh, in such stuff as Mrs. Miniver, Pride of the Yankees with Gary Cooper and um, Best Years of Our Lives which she gives a wonderful performance in too um, you know I, I think that Charlie is it's so interesting how that version of a teenager in this particular movie is very very uh, uh, timeless Because half the half the teenagers you see in movies in terms of like if we're doing like a high school movie or, you know, um, uh, 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 I would call it an Alexis Bledel mid 2000s movie. um, You know, they they've got problems. They've got their angst and they express it in the form of this whole town is boring. Something needs to happen. (laughs) Right. Just
2: just, (laughs) well. And it's funny because she ultimately gets her wish, but it is not at all what she wanted for like, the excitement oh, she was Oh, you want for.
0: excitement, huh? Well, how about I bring you your murderous uncle? Thank you. I'm Hitchcock. <laughs> just, if there's any form of like, and there's there's just and the, and again, we were talking. I was talking about earlier the mirroring image. She's on the bed, and the first time we see her, she's on the bed just like her uncle Charlie. So there's also there's the intimation that she possesses so much of Charlie that she she would either a follow in his footsteps or b be smart enough to sniff it out. But she's so infatuated with him that it's more that she sees the connection more than anything else. That she's blinded by that up to the point uh, up to the midpoint of the movie.
2: Um, right. Well, and in and, and her defense, she definitely knows something is going on, Yeah. Um, but she's not sure what it is. And I think that that speaks to, again, it's like she can't fathom that this person she's idolized is a bad person. So there's something going on that he's not talking about, but she's thinking of, she's not thinking anything bad. No, uh, which goes back to that idea of bringing this, you know, the bringing the monster or the killer or the crime to small town America uh, is that, you know, like, why would you think that? We live in Santa Rosa, California. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody's name. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, why would that happen? Yeah,
0: and it's, it's the question that permeates your mind. And, like, it, it, no matter how many times they did it in film, it's not really until the 80s that you start, uh, that this starts to become passe, but this film kind of innovates it to a certain respect. Um, obviously, other films had, like, tackled similar issues before, but, like, after shadow of a doubt, you do get a series of films that talk about like that that uh uh that disruption in paradise, so it were, and a lot of radio dramas of the era do this as well, whether it's the Whistler or suspense um so you know Uncle Charlie has met at the train station um uh Hitchcock has said that the train coming in with the black smoke coming out of the smokestack is, is a symbol of the, it was intentional to signify the evil that's coming into the town. Um, <laughs> to talk about like, you know, there's some imagery that he'll acknowledge and not acknowledge. Like he won't acknowledge, uh, the imagery of the oven and torn curtain, but this one he will. So like, clearly, you know, which films he prefers. Um, yeah. so, and
2: we're not, I mean, this might be jumping the gun a little bit, but I'm starting to think that, uh, Hitchcock had some kind of fetish with choking.
0: There's a lot of choking in his movies. There is a... Well, and I think it it stems back to this is the old-fashioned way you portray a murder on screen because you're not allowed to show a knife going in or anything like that. So this is the...
2: It's the one, the one thing you can get away with yeah, <laughs> at this point. It,
0: well, it's, it's, it's similar to how things need to be ciphered or covered up in terms of... Uh, in t- in t- an allusion to violence of any kind, whether it's just regular violence sexual violence anything of that nature it always has to be portrayed in a certain way and i guess strangling it seems like it's a motif that's in a lot of uh silent films of the era not 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 to disclude anything that he did in the uh in the early british gamo period because obviously you have a lot in there but you also have strangulation in the form of dial in for murder which we discussed last episode so he he uses this a lot and i think it's actually a um it imagery wise it 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 makes charlie all the more menacing um like it's i would feel like if he's he's kind of like a precursor to norman bates to a certain respect with his past but if he were to hold a knife like norman i don't feel like it would hold the same menace as it does here when he's you know like hand holding hands in this film is a form of terror like so when he um, we'll we'll jump a little bit ahead in the plot so she uh he he comes to the house gets settled in charlie is you know poking and prodding him for questions he's kind of holding back a little bit but he's still engaging with the family and you know it's good to see y'all um and uh he's reading the evening paper uh after dinner has settled and after he's talked with charlie and given her um his gift to her which is a ring uh that has an inscription on it already This might be a clue, guys. It'll come back later. Um, But he reads the paper um, uh, while everybody else takes care of the chores, and he notices that there's a story about the Mary Widow murderer in the paper, uh, but he doesn't uh, want anybody to know, so he creates a, a, a paper house out of the newspaper in order to cover up the evidence. But Charlie pretty much suspects something's up, so she's wondering, well, did they write about my uncle coming back to town? <laughs> um, yeah,
2: I, I do. Yeah, she definitely did notice that part of it was gone and that he was behaving strangely. Um, oh, I get it. My yeah, uncle's wonder, a celebrity. Like, right. Well, it, and that's the thing. Like, you know, Everyone seems to kind of not be aware of what Uncle Charlie does for a living. Yep. Other than that, their perception is that he's very successful, so... Maybe it is something that he's just like, oh, I don't want you to know that I, you know, am close some big business deal or something, you know, something that would make a national news kind of setting. Because, again, at this point, like we know he's up to something, but we don't know the severity of what he's up to. Right. So as a viewer. So
0: for all we know, you know, Teresa writes, you know, looking at Uncle Charlie going like, oh, my God. My uncle is that opera critic from the Tribune. Oh, my God. He got (laughs) fired. I know. That's why. He doesn't want anybody to know that he got fired from Citizen Kane's paper. Oh, no. We're not talking about that movie. We're talking about this one here, Teresa. Get it right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm I'm, I'm not going to not bring up Citizen Kane more than once in this because it's just it's Joseph Cotton, guys. He's in another Hitchcock movie. But let's face it. We know what Joseph Cotton's most known for.
2: Um well and I'll tell you how like how much how curious I was. I was watching this uh when I was watching the movie, he's looking at the paper and I was looking at the, the back side of the paper that you can see as the viewer. And I didn't see anything that jumped out at me, so I looked away for a second and then when I looked back he had it and he was tearing the section out. Yep. And I was like, shit, what did I miss? So I had to roll it back in my janky PlayStation Blu-ray controls. <laughs> which did make no sense whatsoever. I had to roll it back mm-hmm. somehow and like rewatch to make sure I didn't miss it. Cause I wanted to know what he was hiding, you know? He, and then I found out, damn it. They don't show anything yet. It's still, still a mystery. What's going well, on here?
0: Well, there's two shots where there's one shot where he shows him putting a little section of the paper into his pocket. And then they show him folding up and putting the rest in there. Um, mm-hmm. But she goes and interrogates him. Like, I know why you uh, pl- uh, wanted to get rid of father's paper. It's because you were fired from that other paper, right? No, no. Um, and uh, but she's like, no, I, they wrote about you. And she's just like, oh, really? He's like, oh, really? Like, you know, like, you, you sure, you know, and she pulls out the paper from his jacket pocket and he goes up and just grabs her arms and just it's it's again, like, as we were just discussing, you know, hand contact in this movie is a form of violence. Um uh, is, is a f- and a form of emotion in that respect, and, Definitely, and but then yeah. he pulls back, and uh, and you know they uh, you know they reconcile, and she's just happy to see him, and so, and that's
2: the first time too when he grabs her arm with that paper. That's the first time that you get the sense that he might be a violent person, right? Yeah, right. Because up until this point, like you don't it, all it could be is like you know a bunch of money was stolen from a bank in New Jersey or whatever, and that's where he came from, you know. Um, like, again, it it could have been anything at this point that he could have been accused of, but that's kind of your hint that maybe he's not, uh, the nice, friendly uncle, you know, um, positive role model figure that you think he is. Yeah.
0: But he's, uh, but, but he kind of, and he shadows it a lot with his devotion to his sister and to the family history. And there's a discussion, uh, in the next scene about, you know, Charlie's never been photographed. Uh, and they look at a picture of young Charlie, and Emma goes into the story of how Charlie had basically suffered brain damage at a young age in an accident. Um, And it's it's shot in this beautiful one, just one shot of reactors in the frame, Joseph Cotton in the foreground reacting to Emma telling this story over and over again. Mm -hmm. We are seeing that this is something that he... It seems like he's, it seems like he's just like, it's almost like he knows that this is the cause of why he does what he does, or this is the moment when he realized that the world is a foul sty, as we'll get to in a minute. Um, right.
2: But, and, well, and it's, it's very funny as a, uh, yeah. it speaks to at that time in our past, uh, we didn't understand mm-hmm. killers and motivations and things. And that having a, you know, a TBI as a child is probably not likely to yeah. <laughs> lead you to being a murderous adult, but, um, it is kind of an interesting way to kind of explain what went wrong with him.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a movie explanation. I don't know. I, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hold up water, um, uh, in the strictest sense, but you can't right. allude it to stuff today. I mean
2: it's Oh, for sure. I, I just yeah. think it's it's culturally interesting oh, to yeah. look at that and and see like, oh gosh, we've we've come a long way. Yeah. And this from, is the mid from those days.
0: Yeah, and this is the midpoint between something like the Lodger and um something even uh I would say as early as Rope where we're starting to dissect the functionality of these killers. Uh and then specifically with Charlie's case You know, I said he's a precursor to Norman Bates only in the sense that the familial attachment combined with the murderous rage is you can you can parallel it. Um, I think that unlike Norman, obviously, Charlie is designated more in the category of uh, he does this for uh, a righteous cause and he's fully aware of it, whereas Norman it has a whole different set of um problems, you know, yeah, so for sure, so we're yeah. seeing the rise of this, and amongst all the things like so nobody knows what Charlie is up to other than Charlie, and possibly two men who are coming down to do the census or the national poll,. <laughs> Right. Which, by the way, (laughs) another thing that holds up, we still don't want those people in our fucking house.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, for sure. It's like, Um, why why would you ever invite them over?
0: I can't do a Joseph Cotton, but it's just like, no, no, look, you tell them that I'll vote however I damn well (laughs) want (laughs) to vote. But so Charlie um, doesn't want to be interviewed by these men. They're going to come around, take pictures of the house and take pictures of the typical American family. And she and Emma says a telling line, which is, I told her we're not a typical American family. And you as the audience are like, oh, but you are. And that's what makes this tragic. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. You see, I put that line in there so that they know that. uh, See, yeah, that shit's going to get fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Look, 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 look. (laughs) Um, So um, uh, he puts it. He's going to put it out of his mind. They're going to come at four uh charlie takes uncle charlie to uh the bank uh where uh father newton works he makes a callous joke about embezzlement and uh uh there was a jo- uh, there there's a bit of timid- timidity out of uh, henry travers here going like we don't make bank jokes here at the bank charlie <laughs> like just, <laughs> i could get fired you asshole <laughs> like great <laughs> <Right. laughs> Uh, but, but
2: I I should note too with the the father character because before this we're introduced to the friend mm-hmm. and their conversations about murder, right? Yes, or yes. Am so, I screwing up the timeline? Yeah,
1: we'll
0: we'll pop back a little bit. Um, this is kind of like a sideline that ends up being a um, a choir of sorts throughout the movie. But Herbie Hawkins is uh, a crime fiction buff along with Joe Newton, and uh, throughout the film they are talking about the perfect way to kill each other. <laughs>
2: yeah and, which, and it's i it has nothing i mean i shouldn't say nothing it it alludes to the plot in that they kind of let you know hey this is a murder story yeah right because when you first hear them talking you still don't know what uncle charlie might have done you still don't see him as someone who's potentially violent so um it, it seems just like a throwaway silly conversation yeah that continues throughout but it is really um they're they're uh interactions are very humorous and and uh enjoyable to watch uh, and just their speculations on on the perfect way to kill each other is pretty pretty entertaining.
0: They they they're lovely to watch. I'll tell you they they are fantastic to watch because you uh, one I'm glad that Joseph Newton's not a board character obviously I said that up front. But also they're, the, the 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 beauty of it is that they're talking about Crime fiction and the best ways to kill somebody or who's the better detective, like virtually unaware that there's an actual crime going on in their midst. Uh, and the yeah, only time they mentioned the actual crime that's going on, it, the, this line comes later, and I love it. It's just like, uh, I was I was not really into that case. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. You, yeah. All the things you have been describing on how you would put each other in the ground from mushrooms to a small amount of poison in tea uh, or to the holding the legs in the bathtub – like this is like how can you not be interested in the Mary Widow Murderer? <laughs> like right, <laughs> yeah. You know what they no. sound like, Aaron? And it, this huh. I'm gonna say this as a loving devotion. They sound like nerds, and <laughs> they sound like what Ryan, Brad, James, and I do every week on this fucking show <laughs> is talk about like no 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 if Iron Man could
2: jump out the window. Like, <laughs> then um, clearly War Machine should be able to do the same.
0: Look, look, look. There's no reason that Captain America wouldn't be able to snap your neck, Joe. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> be it's re- funny
2: you bring that up because we we re-watched Captain America <laughs> and the first Avengers movie last night.
0: Oh, that movie's so. fucking great. <laughs> what <laughs> if I had directed that? That would have been great.
2: <laughs> God, I can't even imagine. Oh. It's funny, too, because it, it put into sharp contrast to the simplicity um, Simplicity is the wrong word. Uh, I guess I would say how contained stories from Hitchcock's are. era are compared to modern cinema. Well, and it, right and, yeah. And I don't know if it's if it's the fact that like when you watch a, a Hitchcock film and there's lines of dialogue, there's always these lines that just because people and I don't know if people actually talked this way back then or if it was strictly for film or what, but everyone talks pretty quickly and there's a lot of these little lines that you feel like are throwaway lines that end up being really important later it's it's so yeah as a viewer for like modern films um we we hear a line and we're like oh that's going to come back later you like most people catch it now and i don't know if it's because we're just used to that trick in movies or if they just did it better back then um but there's something about that like the simplicity of of the plots uh, again, I keep saying simplicity, but that's a bad way to put it. Cause it's not necessarily simple. It's just, it's very much contained. Like, you know who the major players are and there's no like, you know, major shifts in anything. Um, right. And it's kind of nice. It's kind of refreshing to just see a very contained succinct story compared to some of these like really big, yeah overly complex storytelling elements
0: well what's interesting is that hitchcock is a proponent of that big and fantabulous but when he goes intimate that's when he's i feel that's when he's usually at his best um Mm -hmm. i know there's a big fondness obviously for things like north by northwest and um uh um even um uh even vertigo has a lot of scale to it or you know topaz has a lot of scale but there's also problems with topaz But he likes doing these bigger pieces like Foreign Correspondent. Actually, Foreign Correspondent is a great example. Very expansive, a lot of big set pieces, huge action going on. But whenever he's getting intimate, uh, even in those bigger films, that's when those are the moments you I tend to remember the best personally. Um, And I think this film is obviously full of them because, like, the biggest set piece we have is the train at the end. Um, And uh, and it's not even that big of, of a set piece. Um, I think you could also say the bar where they have the confrontation, um, but it's it's I think also with the dialogue, the pattern of that era, I, I, I would have to imagine a part of it is also, hey, talking pictures are around. We can have people talk. Uh, let's the, let's uh, jazz it up. But it's also like that was the that was the speaking pattern delivery of the era. Um, I think it's more exaggerated in your "His Girl Fridays" and stuff like that, where the script is fucking 160 pages, but it's fitting into a 90-minute movie. I think
2: right. they, <laughs>
0: I think they talk pretty uh, modulated in most of Hitchcock's films. I never feel like they're going too pitter pattery, um, right? Because not yeah, every film very, does do that, but,
2: yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because it's so much of it is, um, I guess, so much more formal than how we speak now. Yeah. That I think that's the other reason it you know it's it's I guess more well hidden within that dialogue when there's there's a little nod to something that's going to happen later yeah you're more um, you're
0: more in the moment of what's happening that moment and not thinking about what may happen down the line right. right exactly yeah um so they go to the bank, Charlie puts in the money that we we as the audience are suspecting is clearly you know amongst the other things he gained from strangling those women um and they go back to the house and uh the two. Uh, poll takers have arrived, uh, except they're not obviously the poll takers. Um, they are none other than Detective Jack Graham and Detective Fred Saunders, also known as Detective Bland and Detective Bland. Um, (laughs) they, oh, I will, okay, I'm mean. Jack Graham is the most personable stick in the wo- stick of wood I've ever seen in a Hitchcock. movie. <laughs> and, and now now and I'm a guy who will defend John Gavin to the end of the earth because uh, I love Psycho almost unconditionally to that point, And he's named after one of the greatest doctor characters in film history that would happen later on. Um, anyway, Jack Graham is likable and personable. And Fred Saunders does add his own, like, little character ticks in the moments that we see them. And obviously Graham is more of a romantic interest for Charlie. Fred Saunders is is your workaday cop or detective, but his little tick is he really doesn't like putting up with Emma. <laughs> <laughs> and her her refusal to crack an egg when he's commanding it uh, for the pictures of her at home in the house baking. Um, so they're going around asking the poll questions, and really they're trying to get a photograph of Uncle Charlie. Charlie does goes to many lengths to avoid having his photo taken. Uh, he makes a slip up by coming um, uh, back into the house through the back door, and uh, they get a picture of him. He says, I'm going to have to ask for that film back they give him the film back or do they? Um, and uh, I, ha- I have
2: to say that was a, um, I think like, and, and I don't know what what it is um, for me, but when they did, I was like, Oh, he switched that film. Yeah. Like it wasn't even a question. You kind of
0: call, you kind of call it from the get go, but like I, there's a part of you that's just like, well, like uh, how, but like, it, it, you know what? It goes back to the movie logic thing where I'm just like, you know what? Things just happen. <laughs>
2: yeah well and, and honestly i i think for me the reason i i was like oh yeah i know what he did there uh a little confession here that maybe a lot of people don't know about me um i used to do magic in like middle school high school what and yeah and so that that move he did i'm like oh yeah no that's a switch you use like in magic to oh. like load something or change something out oh, so dude i knew there um, was a
0: reason i brought you on for this movie <laughs> <laughs> i did not know you were so, a
1: magician
2: so it, it was kind of funny seeing that. I'm like, oh yeah, I know that move. Like, you know, yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah. That Morrison uh, fella thought he was a magician. Look what I fucking did.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that is so cool. I have to watch that frame by frame now. Like, oh my god, that's
2: well. And what's funny is it's not even like a, it's not really like a, a specific move. It's just the motion he did. I was like, oh, if I were doing a magic trick, that's what I would do to distract you from what I was actually doing and that, goes, you know, so it just like something about it, yeah. like hit that chord in my brain where I was like, Oh, I, I bet he switched that and out he, there. And
0: it goes back to Hitch's detail that we've talked about as early on as episode two, where he's going to p- throw in those little dabs of detail in there. Man, that, mm-hmm. that I did not even think that that is, I, I've seen this movie plenty of times. I've never thought of that. That is dude. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for lending your expertise on this one. <laughs> I'm blown away right now. I don't think the show's over. Like and I just now we need to do I, a know, magic podcast.
2: I've, <laughs> I've officially revealed how gigantic of a nerd I am, so you've covered it all now. You
0: also broke the magician's oath to not reveal those secrets so you, much like Job and Arrested Development, are no longer welcome to that magic
2: castle. I, I did not reveal how it was done. Oh. I just said I recognized the move.
0: Ah. But you won't reveal that move under <laughs> under penalty of magic death. <laughs>
2: let me uh, put on a mask and get a network TV show first and then we'll talk. <laughs>
0: uh, I mean, I, if anything, Penn and uh, Pen Pen and Teller will just uh, take your, take, our, take this podcast and be like, here's how they did it. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> Cause everything is skeptical. Um, I, <laughs> those people are funny anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, so they get the photo. Uh, Jack Graham uh, thing. It says, that's all we need, ma'am. Uh, except I would like to uh, take your daughter out if uh, you'll let me. And uh You know, it's why I say like, you know, Jack Graham's not just some typical um, masculine cipher. He's 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 going to he's going to be more involved in this movie, (laughs) whether we like it or not. (laughs) Right. Uh, I
2: do enjoy that they introduce him as that. You know, he's interested in in young Charlie, but that uh, ultimately does not um, assist in anything in a meaningful way with uh, the conflict.
0: No, Um, no, no. He just needs to look pretty. Can he just look pretty?
2: (laughs) But again, the, uh, you know, going back to the typical Hollywood damsel in distress, you know, guy has to come in and save her situation. It's nice that they didn't do that, even though they kind of set it up like that could have happened.
0: Right. Exactly. This could have been a situation where you have your typical uh, male hero come in and save the day. But thankfully, you know we've talked about how Hitchcock teeter totters around a little bit when it comes to well, are his women characters strong, or are they not? There's constant mm-hmm. debate about that. One thing you can say is is that he will make women the focal point or the lead character of the movie more often than not, and this is certainly the case because it's actually a dual lead because obviously Charlie and Uncle Charlie and their connection make them both like dual protagonists, I guess, which goes against marshall's theory but you know i'm gonna just use it (laughs) for the sake of this argument here (laughs) right (laughs) um but so um they they have a night on the town you know Teresa wright looking gorgeous and fantastic and jack looking like jack and (laughs) (laughs) i don't know who i am to be judging people's looks but you know whatever um so they go around the town and uh uh it's uh through a reveal um it's a it's an interesting edit uh, where they're having this wonderful time, and then it suddenly sticks on Loretta Young's face, backs out, and says, "What are you saying about my uncle?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's 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 not like an awkward edit. Like it's not like oh, this doesn't belong. It's just more like man, like that's an interesting way to transition their conversation, where they're clearly having fun at that local diner to this. Right. Um, and then so it is. It does
2: feel like kind of rushed. Like why why is suddenly this a thing now?
0: Yeah. And, and so as a result, um, we, uh, he reveals what they are suspecting Charlie of, but they also make it clear that there's another man in the East who is also suspected of the same crimes and that they're on pursuit of him as well. So we've already planted the bomb under the, now we're planting this bomb under the table, which is Charlie actively suspects her uncle, um, she um, of committing a crime, of committing but she didn't crime. want the details. Yeah, she,
2: so we still don't know what he may have done. Yeah. Cause she, cause correct. He, I feel like that's what happened, but I, I may be misremembering.
0: Yeah. Well, no, he, he's not, he doesn't get, he doesn't get extremely specific with it. She has to puzzle it together by uh reclaiming that newspaper article and heading to the library late at night, pounding on the door going like, let me in, let me in. And uh, you know, I'm sorry, Teresa. Right? You're you're beautiful. You're gorgeous, but I still wouldn't let you op- uh, into the library after hours because people need to go home.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nine o'clock. It's time for that's like the the customer that walks in a, a minute before closing. Yeah. to do shopping. It's like no, you're not. You don't have time. Yeah, you missed your window. Yeah,
0: this this goes for Teresa Wright. This also goes for Jake Gyllenhaal and Zodiac when he's pounding on police doors late at night going like, I found another clue that could lead to another clue maybe. Um, <laughs> watch Zodiac, guys. It's wonderful. Um, but, oh, it's uh, a great flick. Yeah, um, but she, she is granted access to this library, um, <laughs> and uh, she goes through the news past newspapers, and in a move that Peter Bogdanovich describes – uh, has um, you know a sudden breath of air being taken out of you we see the full clipping of the Mary widow murderer and uh the full description we find out that the latest victim would have been a mrs b uh a um uh, i believe it was a music uh con- instructor or a, a music connoisseur and she looks at the ring that she was given uh was given to her by uncle Charlie and the inscription that she was noticing is an inscription that would match this specific victim. So now the the bomb under the table is Charlie knows. So when is, uh, uncle Charlie going to find out that Charlie knows and what's going to happen from there.
2: And this is another, um, I shouldn't say another, this is one of the parallels that I noticed yesterday when we were watching strangers on a train is this small item that ties someone to a crime that becomes kind of a key part of the story. Yeah. Because you in in *Strangers on a Train* you have the lighter,
1: <laughs> yeah. With
2: the uh, with the names on it, and in this you have the ring, and in both cases the uh, the object would implicate someone in a crime, but in in one case it impl- implicates a guilty party, and the other it implicates a, an innocent party. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of an interesting uh, thing that he used some kind of small, uh, seemingly innocuous object to um be the crux of of guilt or innocence in the flick
0: yeah and and you know it's i think that the it's 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 interesting how the this film and uh strangers on a train both mirror each other and then also diametrically oppose each other within those elements because you can also uh tie in um emma to um uh, Bruno's mom in strangers on a train in that certain respect mm-hmm. in terms of their devotion to um th- their significant um subject at hand um and right. and just and you're right that utilization of a small prop um uh, uh to to in- implicate uh implicate somebody or um relieve them of any guilt uh, is definitely present within that. Um, the The ring is the MacGuffin, and so is the newspaper. Like they don't really matter to those plots, but they are essential to the characters understanding what's going on.
2: Exactly. Yeah. yeah.
0: So they. Um, uh, <laughs> she goes back home. Um, she's feeling on edge, um, and the smartest one in the room wants to switch seats <laughs> away from Uncle Charlie. <laughs> And, uh, she said like, Oh, I talked, uh, uh, I, I, she's like, Oh, I, I talked to Roger. He doesn't mind. And I'm like, of, co- of course not. Little young Norman Bates has to learn something from his uncle. Right. Right. <laughs> um, he, he looks eerily like he could be a young Tony Perkins in that movie. It is really bizarre. <laughs> it's all connected in that hashtag thing. Yeah. The Twitters, um, <laughs> um so that they sit down to have dinner and, uh, uh, within that, Herbie comes back to uh, discuss another one of his famous perfect murders. Um, Uncle Charlie decides that he's just gonna open up a little bit of himself to the family dinner. <laughs> right?
2: Yeah, that's such a man. Like, if you're a murderer on the run, that is not the monologue you give at the dinner table. <laughs> he,
0: he, he, the the quotes are he describes he he's calling these he's talking about these widows who. He's basically talking about men work and slave for women to then just live off of that money. They eat their money. They drink their money. They b- bet it on bridge games. And I'm like, you're getting very specific. And, <laughs> and, which, and now, granted, this is also a stereotypical trope of the widow character in any given age during this period of the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, mm-hmm. But he refers to them as fat, wheezing animals. <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you what happens to animals when they get too fat and too old and i'm like jesus christ right this is in the <laughs> 1940s guys i don't want to hear any more that black and white movies are boring. If I hear that out of another person, I'm going to shove this movie right in front of them and say, watch, (laughs) there's, there is no, the the, the only difference between this and what David Fincher does is that David Fincher will actively put blood and splatter it all over the walls if necessary. Um, (laughs) Um, you know, so like, obviously Charlie has his issues with women and specifically elderly women. Um, uh Ben and uh uh young Charlie freaks out at this. She runs out <coughs> she runs out, and uh Uncle Charlie follows her um and takes her to basically takes her to a bar um where uh, it would have seemed one of her younger friends who's gone astray has gone to work now <laughs> like. Yeah, um, which is such It's so depressing. Everything
2: with that character is so strange. She's, Just like she's, her performance and what she says and she's like
0: bored Betty Davis is how Yeah. <laughs> like she is incredibly disengaged, like, wow, that's a really cool ring. I love that she's, ring.
2: <laughs> she's like the precursor to um Oh god, what's her name? Aubrey Plaza? <laughs> like, that archetype. <laughs> I like...
0: was I was re- I was re- when I was thinking of her, the only thing I could think of um in this viewing was um uh, the secretary to uh Timothy Dalton in Hot Fuzz, who's just sitting at the desk filing her nails <laughs> like <laughs> manager to <laughs> Mr. Skinner to the manager's office, Mr. Skinner, <laughs> <laughs> so he runs down a more elaborate version. Of his speech at the dinner table to Charlie, basically implying like b- he's basically admitting to the crime um, and uh, b- b- while also trying to get her on his side.
2: Um, right. Basically saying, like, you've you've been stuck in small town America and you don't know what the real world is like. And it's a pretty awful place. And yeah. You know, it's what I've done is not that bad. It's it's essentially it's
0: it's the it's the most fucked up version of trying to get someone woke I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, that 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 was not a term yet. No, everybody was woke back in the 40s. (laughs) (laughs) No, they weren't hitch. Um, uh, So, um, you know, they go back to the house and uh, Charlie basic Uncle Charlie basically agrees to leave in a couple of days. So long as she doesn't reveal what's going on. Uh, and it, it, it it turns from there into the, 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 now the suspense lies in, will Charlie leave, will Charlie be found out for that matter? Um, we cut back to a day later and the detectives, um, have revealed that they did in fact get the film thanks to Aaron's magic and... (laughs) (laughs) Um, thanks to your fucking magic tricks and um and uh they're gonna uh compare that photo to witnesses along with uh photos of the other person they're tracking down in the east Um, but it's also revealed that uh within this that the man in the east was um gunned down uh in the midst of a pursuit and
2: and honestly i this is the one kind of plot hole problematic issue I have uh-huh. is that because they're they're chasing down who's actually not gunned down. Uh, he is runs is running away and runs into a uh, an airplane propeller. Yes, um, yes. Which is which makes kind you, of hilarious. Which makes
0: you wonder, was he in, in pursuit by a archaeologist who was uh, searching for some kind of religious relic? Um, it's
2: possible. Oh, it yeah, dude. Oh,
0: it's you see how smart I am <laughs>
2: <laughs> but um, I, th- this is the I, I find this problematic because they, they had one of their suspects they chased him he died and they just assume well he did it we're done now um, I, even though they have a photo of someone that to me I would say let's go ahead and ask the eyewitness if this was the person uh, so we know the right person is gone
0: okay so my yeah. assumption is is that they're assuming because that man ran and Charlie didn't that they're going to Hold on to that lead more.
2: Um, I, that's what I think too. I mean, I I do believe that you know why would you run um, if you hadn't done anything wrong, right? But at the same time, you know, check all your you know cross all your t's dot all your i's, yeah. like make sure you got it all.
0: You know what? What Saunders really should have done was just bring on Anne as their third partner in the investigation because she could have helped them solve it instantly just like that oh so much faster oh god it would have
2: been like a 20 minute movie oh dude it
0: would and it would have been the best Nancy Drew pilot we've ever seen (laughs) (laughs) I I can come up with murders I can come up with thrilling action and I can come up with girl mystery novels (laughs) (laughs) look at what I can do I can do everything Um, so uh, (laughs) I I love Hitch (laughs) He's so happy in this film because he's just having fun with this, um but yep. so um uh the the lead is thrown off uh Charlie feels like, "Oh, I've got it covered. I can stay here now in Hicksburg, um, but he there's this wonderful shot where he's like oh well i'm I'm relieved, I'm going up the stairs and get ready for dinner goes up those stairs there's a pause, a long ass pause before he turns around and sees that Charlie's still suspecting him
2: right and or, which it, is a great I mean great, great, great shot. shot. Like, yeah, like she's in the doorway. You've got the shadow casting in like and
0: she's sort of obscured a little bit too, like just yeah. from the film from the f- from the focus. But it, it, it's not a it's not a technical glitch. She just looks amazing. But she, so she because she already got a confession essentially out of him in the bar, he's not off the hook. Um, right. And, and
2: I do think to some extent she's willing to leave it alone so long as he leaves. Yeah. Exactly. But then when he decides to stay, that's when she's like, no. I can't just leave this alone.
0: No, exactly. He, 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 there's no going back from this. So Charlie's now got to figure out how to eliminate her, 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 his niece from, from the situation. Um, so uh, Jack comes by to say goodbye. And uh, he and uh, young Charlie have a flirtasis engagement in the garage <laughs> Where he
2: confesses his love for her, even though they went on one date. Yeah, which oh, the forties. Yeah,
0: pro uh, pro tip based on experience: don't do that. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go over well. No, it doesn't. Twenty twenty. You get your heart uh, broken, and no, Teresa Wright won't go out with you. I'm sorry. Because <laughs> <It's just, laughs> she even says like, I don't know, but you're a good friend. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he does. Yeah, he gets friend zoned. It's pretty great.
0: Well no, she gives him a slimmer of hope, I guess, because she's like, "Well, oh, I do hope you come back. I do hope like." Right. She just, you know what? He just came out
2: a little strong, she, even you know, for you, the forties. You know
0: what? Yeah, she's correct. Like because uh, you know, like, look, you are clearly a guy I would want to go out with. However, I've got a murderous uncle in the house, so that first, you second, right. like yeah.
2: you come later. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, you, you, um, male cipher, step to the side for a second while I deal with uh, Orson Welles's uh, acting friend there. <laughs> Stop mentioning him. <laughs> Um, so, um, uh, uh, she, um, they get trapped in the garage too. And it sets up that later scene in the garage. Um, so we begin a, a small series of Ch- uncle Charlie trying to kill young Charlie first by, uh, uh, affecting the steps, um, from the back entrance to the house. Um, oh no, you could have tripped and broke your neck. And, uh, she yeah. puzzles it together by putting the broken piece of wood to the rest of the stairs, which,
2: you know, like he sees her doing, which is she, she, which is, and they don't even like. It's not even a secret. She comes upstairs, and he's standing up there watching her, and they have a conversation. Yeah, but,
0: isn't it amazing that she does more detective work than Batman ever does in any movie we see? Yeah, <laughs> um, it's true. Yeah, it's like Teresa Wright should have been Batman, guys. I'm sorry, like to, not to piss off anybody, but <laughs> or maybe <laughs> I am. Um, but uh, so they have that beautiful, uh, beautifully dark lit scene. Um, oh yeah, where, that's,
2: that's another one of those where I'm just like. This is why I love noir stuff, man. Like yeah. that lighting is so so good. And he
0: starts doing that gaslighting of like no one's going to believe you, that that like that manipulation thing and she's just like, you know, I I, I want you, I don't want you to touch my mother. I don't want you near my mother. And he's like, well, I got to I got to figure out a different way to get rid of her. So he uh starts uh she he leaves the car on without the key in there uh with it filling up with uh gas, knowing that if um Young Charlie goes in there; she'll be trapped and uh, get monoxide poisoning. Um, But thankfully, as this happens, when they're all getting ready to go to a lecture where Uncle Charlie's going to speak, Young Charlie goes out there to get the to get the car, and you know she's overwhelmed with smoke. But luckily, Herbie Hawkins uh, happened to be passing by.
2: Yeah, (laughs) he's the coolest character ever. (laughs) I'll say it's funny because, you know, he is a very It's very convenient, but at the same time, they've also established that he kind of comes by around dinner every night, yeah, and um they're heading out to an event tonight, probably around the time they would normally be yeah having dinner so it it makes sense that he would come by, but um so I can appreciate that, but it is still very convenient that he just happens by. I do think it's funny that he runs inside instead of trying harder to open the shed himself, yeah but. well well clearly her
0: herbie herbie as badass as he is. Is is probably not going to be able to open that door. <laughs> I, I, Fair enough. No no offense to uh, aged up Hugh Cronin. By the way, they did have to age him up makeup wise because he was not the age that Herbie was supposed to be. Um, but uh, so um, uh, ch- young Charlie escapes uh, it, it escapes via help from everybody because suddenly Charlie's caught from his scheme, so he's got to cover it up by saving young Charlie. He's trying to revive her, and she says, "Go away." <laughs> it's just wonderful <laughs> acting on Teresa Wright's part. Um, right, and uh, so they go to the lecture and whatnot. And while uh, and and leaving Teresa Wright alone in the home, while they're off at of the lecture, she locates the ring, uh, which she had previously taken off and given back to Charlie at the bar. Um, so she grabs it from him again. Uh, they come back to the house. Uh, Charlie's re- getting ready to make a toast, and as uh, young Charlie comes down the stairs, he's waiting for her to make this toast, and he sees that the ring is on her hand, and so uh, he knows that she's not going to stop until he's caught or that he goes away. So he makes the sudden announcement: "I'm leaving. <laughs> Bye." Yep. <laughs> and uh, leaving and tomorrow it, morning, and, his, and, um, it, and it breaks Emma's heart, obviously.
2: Right. And uh, it's interesting, too, like the, you know, in movies of that era, I feel like any more we would you would see a a protagonist um, not showing their hand like that, you know, hiding the stuff, going to the police with it later, that sort of thing. Right. Um, So it is a very interesting, you know. Again, her just trying to get him to go, yeah, because she doesn't think she thinks that's the only solution available. Yeah, is like, because we sh- go, because, you know? well,
0: because we should mention she and Charlie are uh, – she and Uncle Charlie are both aware that if if Emma were to find out what was going on, it it would like absolutely shatter her world,
2: right? Like, and they and despite his his disdain for women or what seems like disdain for women overall he seems to genuinely care about his sister at least
0: yeah he's he's a character that i think like his his fondness and again that motif of the merry widow dance does come into play within this regard is like he is your year- there is a there's a general yearning from him for the days prior to his accident um mm-hmm. and, the, and an era like the simpler time which is interesting because uh joseph cotton the year before in the Magnificent Ambersons plays a character who is essentially on the side of moving forward in time and not reflecting back, um, (laughs) because it's very much about that gilded age and also the, the emergence of the automobile. Um, and how a uh, uh, an old money family is ruined by it. Um, and it, the movie would be great, except the ending sucks because it wasn't by uh, Orson Welles. So, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a whole other story we'll get into in another series that's down the line. But because uh, I'll have <laughs> a enough. lot to yell about. Um, but so anyway, he announces he's leaving first thing tomorrow at the train station. Um, uh, the whole family wants to you know get a tour of the train before Uncle Charlie departs. Um, He corners young Charlie and basically says, you know, uh, I want you to forget about me. I want you to forget that I was ever here, but you know, obviously as the train is starting to move and the rest of the family has left the train, she's, uh, she's not going anywhere (laughs) and it's terrifying.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's a really, um, it's a really tense scene. It calls back to that, you know, the, the, you know, holding hands or grabbing someone is seen as like a very violent act yep. because, of course, he you know he grabs her her wrists very forcibly yep. initially to have the conversation with her to keep her on the train until it's moving. And
0: there's always like a there, his hands are always visible when there's about to be something on his end that's menacing, and so like right. and they're lit in a very harsh shadow. Um, and so he grabs a hold of her. She's he's trying to throw her off the train as soon as it gets fast enough, but. She's able to maneuver and hold on to the train and Charl Uncle Charlie makes the fatal mistake and falls out of the train and gets hit by an oncoming train. And uh as he dies, the Merry Widow Waltz uh ever plays on in a very haunting way. Um in a way I wish that the movie would end on this moment alone. Uh yeah. I
2: feel like that's that's really all it needed. Yeah. Um, um, but obviously
0: we need the, the tie up.
2: <laughs> right. And it's funny because I feel like this era of, um, cinema was more common to just end it there. Right. And roll credits. Um, so I, this might be that kind of transitional moment where they realized, oh, we need to like tie this up a little bit, you know, and have like a more refined ending. Um, cause we talked about it a little bit in, um, uh, when we did, uh, the man who knew too much and the remake yeah, and how, you know, very much in, in one, it just kind of ends and the other movie, there's that little kind of humorous throwaway ending. Um, but it's almost like you need that wrap up moment. Uh, and I feel like I prefer that, you know, just it ends like the action is over. We're done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, yeah. So I, I agree. Like, I feel like that moment should have been the end of it, um, but at the same time, the, the scene after with the funeral for, for Uncle Charlie, um, if nothing else, serves as a way for you if, as the viewer to know that the perception of her brother has not been tainted by this. Um, oh, or of her uncle, yeah. 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 But we know. Oh, no, no. For the for um, Char- Young Charlie's mother. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Her perception of, of her brother hasn't changed. Yeah. No, uh, young Charlie knows he's still a murderer. Uh, it's alluded to the fact that the detective knows that that's who they were really after, yeah. but they're going to leave it at that. You know, right. they're not going to pursue it further or drag him through the mud. Cause he's, he's gone now too.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's just like, it's their secret now. And uh, it does, it, it does. end like the conversation they have is well-written. It's just that mm-hmm. obviously there's imagery you'd rather end it on. So, but, right. um, but that, uh, that ends shadow of a doubt. Uh, Hitchcock considered this his favorite film. Uh, Years later um, uh, with an interview in Telescope, um, uh, Fletcher Markle had uh, made the statement, uh, most critics have considered Shadow of a Doubt, which you made in 1943, as your finest film. And Hitchcock immediately replies, me too. Uh, And then um, and in in the question with the follow up question, is that you're still your opinion of it? And Hitchcock would say, oh, no question. So he clearly uh, was a huge fan of this film. Uh, It uh, it got rave reviews um, uh, all across the board. Uh, Bosley Crowther, the guy who I have proclaimed my nemesis, uh, you know, (laughs) loved this film. He's stating that Hitchcock could raise more goose pimples to the square inch of a customer's flesh than any other director in Hollywood. Obviously, he would not feel this way so much down the line in the 50s. But, um, you know, regardless, (laughs) this is one of those Hitchcock films that has 100 percent on Rotten Tomatoes to this day. Uh, So like not every Hitchcock film has that perfect rating. This one does like everybody can agree. This one is fantastic. Uh, It was adapted for radio more than once. Uh, uh, Amongst other ones, you have um, uh, the Lux Radio Theater version in 1944 with Teresa Wright. Uh, as her original role, and William Powell as Uncle Charlie. And William Powell was the original choice for Uncle Charlie, but he could not get out, uh, or he could not be loaned out by MGM. So they got Joseph Cotton instead. Hmm. Which I feel like if Powell did it, you would have talked Oscar for him. Because right. that would have been such a huge departure. Uh, and there was, and there's also, um, uh, discussions that Cary Grant was considered for Uncle Charlie. I, I find those to be. It seems like that that wouldn't necessarily be the case. If you did that, you'd be really fucking around with the Cary Grant mythology, and I don't know how willing people would have been to do that at the time. Right. So
2: yeah, it, it does seem. When I heard that, I was like, "Well, I mean it." It to some extent makes sense because he was you know prominent at the time, but it also feels like a departure from what you expect of a Cary grant <laughs> character in a film listen so.
1: listen
0: darling do you know that the world is a foul sty <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like it doesn't,
2: I don't buy that from him.
0: Oh. Um, you know, uh, you know, obviously Ryan loves Cary Grant, but I think he and I would both agree. Like I, I would have to assume he and I would both agree. Like it'd be really hard to stretch this. Like <laughs> this is paper. That's not going to like form very, or this is, this is silly putty that sat out too long and got hard. Um, right. it's not going to change too much.
2: Um, yep. <laughs> so
0: a um, couple of years go by, Hitchcock um, carries on through the 40s and, uh, you know, forms Transatlantic Pictures that kind of stumbles around. Uh, and uh, it lands him in, in, for our purposes on this episode in the year 1951. And uh, we get his uh, basically his uh, follow up in the noir genre with Strangers on a Train uh, based on the novel by Patricia Highsmith. Hitchcock saw the novel and got the rights for it. And uh, shot in the autumn of 1950 and released by Warner Brothers in 1951. This is still a transatlantic picture because Hitchcock still had the company intact at the time, and Warner Brothers had basically, at this point, bought out uh, transatlantic pictures as the exclusive holders to distribute those particular films. So, um, the, uh, but this is, but at this point, it seems like, um, Bernstein's gone from the picture and it's just Hitchcock. So, uh, 1951, directed by our guy, um, screenplay by Raymond Chandler, Whitfield Cook, and Cinzi Ormond, uh, based on the novel, starring Farley Granger, Ruth Roman, Robert Walker, Patricia Hitchcock, Leo G. Carroll, uh, and Laura Elliott. Um, quite a cast of people. And, uh, the, the production on this film, uh, he got the rights to the novel for only $7,500 since it was her first novel, and Hitchcock kept his name out of the negotiations to keep the price low.
2: <laughs> Which we've also discussed on this podcast. Yep,
0: and Hi- and we we had talked about it, and Hitch uh, Highsmith, was quite annoyed, <laughs> like, very pissed off about that. Um, I can
2: imagine. Uh, but, I would have been. Yeah,
0: but the treatment um, uh, got an initial forming and construction. Uh, the film got an initial uh, forming and construction and an outline by Whitfield Cook, uh, who was really the one who uh, weaves the homoerotic subtext that we see throughout this movie. Whitfield Cook—it's interesting—he's um, a writer who worked on such things as *Straight* stage fright for Hitchcock, and wrote a lot for TV. In the movie *Hitchcock* uh, with Anthony Hopkins, Whitfield Cook as uh, is played off as uh, sort of a uh, um, a guy that. Alma revel might be having an affair with, or at least like he's, they're playing it to that, uh, to that angle. But obviously Whitfield's more interested in hitch reading his treatment for another movie. Uh, that's how it's played in in that particular biopic. But, uh, this is one of two films that he helped with and they were family friends. Uh, and, uh, it's also said that he kind of softened Bruno from, um, an alcoholic into more of a, you know, flippant rich boy. Um, And then uh, Chandler was brought in to do this film, and he and Hitch did not get along. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, The the reason Chandler is being brought in, amongst other things, he's a prolific writer of the detective and the noir genre, having gotten a nomination for double indemnity. And so Chandler um, thought the story was silly, but he took it anyway, and the two just clashed. Uh, It would be they would never work together again. Obviously, uh, Chandler completed a first draft, um, did a second. And then without hearing a single word back from Hitchcock, um, uh, he um, he took the uh, the silence as his uh, exit to the project. Um, He tried to get Ben Hecht to come in and touch it up. But Ben was unavailable. Uh, Hecht suggested Senzi Ormond uh, to finish up the screenplay um, and. The result of what we get is pretty dark, grimy, all set along a sh- a shiny veneer. Really, like this movie, the ugliest it gets in terms of a f- um, a visual standpoint is when we're at the the fair.
2: Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, everything else is very. Um, well, I I don't know. It's it's again the what impressed me with this film as well as uh, the last one is um, the lighting, like. Yeah, it's so it's so well lit so masterfully lit um just little things like when they're riding on the train and seeing like you know the shadow from like a telephone line going by or something yeah. um those kind of details i think we lose in a lot of all the other noise of modern film but it's little things like that that really make the scenes in that movie work
0: and um it should be noted that uh in addition, Alma Revel once again contributing to this screenplay as well. Basically Armand, um uh producer Barbara Kean and Alma all sat down and basically hunkered together uh to punch out this story with less than three weeks until location shooting was gonna happen. And uh even as they were filming on location in uh Washington, uh DC, uh and um Uh, other uh, uh, well, uh, I'm sorry, Uh, filming in um, uh, near Penn station, uh, Connecticut and Washington DC. The, um, they are punching out the script when they get back onto set, they were basically rewriting and finalizing the film on set. So kind of like Casablanca, the film didn't have an ending up till the last minute. Uh, (laughs) They were constantly working on this. Um, This is also the first film um, that Robert Burks shoots for Hitch, hmm. and the now this is Burks working in black and white. So we're not, We've known him primarily for the color films that he shot with Hitch, but clearly Robert Burks was a cameraman to be reckoned with. <laughs> he could yeah, do. Yeah, obviously, he's I the mean, that's... deacons of his era. Man, look at this guy. <laughs> yeah. Um. But um. You know. We're we'll. Talk about me. Farley Granger had obviously pre-worked with Hitch prior on Rope, and uh, uh, Ruth Roman and uh, and um, Laura Elliott are kind of new to this whole uh, Hitch affair.
2: Um, Wait, hold up, hold up. Talk, speaking of Rope, Joseph Valentine, uh, the cinematographer for um, the last movie we talked about, yeah. Uh, was on rope as well, yeah. and I, I just realized it's kind of a travesty we didn't mention him on when, oh, in our yeah. conversation oh, about. Oh, yeah, we
0: should, we should touch on him for a second. Um, I mean, like, the, the the imagery that Valentine gets out of uh, Shadow of a Doubt is, I think it sets a, a template for, I wouldn't say horror films, but I think a lot of thrillers, like way like thriller thrillers were going to get into the 80s and 90s like there's a there's a bit of a soft focus on this film.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean it's it's that it's the um just understanding, you know, like little things with the the framing and the movement of the camera and you know, understanding again, I'm sure part of it too is with whoever's doing the lighting in that um but yeah, really just so masterfully done as far as having control of those shadows and those highlights and um just yeah it's it's shot so well i mean and again same thing with strangers on the train i think the the noir thing is difficult to to nail and i think both do it in the terms of how they you know how they're shot and lit and and uh it's pretty impressive
0: no it it, it's it's definitely it's 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 an innovation of what noir is eventually going to become, but this is explicitly not. We label it as a noir, but like at the time, they're they're looking just to make a suspenseful picture. There's no label on it from the fil, film theory realm. So there's right. there's nothing holding it back in terms of, uh, um, in, in like terms of expected. like what's expected. Yeah, it's like oh, this is what it's supposed to be. You know, right. like there's there's no expectation within that. Scenario. So Strangers on a Train, Strangers on a Train is is very much a sister to Shadow of a Doubt in terms of, or a brother in terms of just capturing that Americana tone amidst a very dark and sinister scenario. And both of these DPs are able to elicit what the darker side of America entails. Like they... They understand its architecture and how it applies to something like German expressionism to create these harsh shadows Mm -hmm. that we end up seeing. I mean, we see it in all of Hitchcock's movies, but like these are these two have prominent instances of it. The likes of which we don't see prior to um, uh, or um, beyond much of the silent era that he shot in. So, uh, I mean, like the man who knew too much has a lot of that, too. Um, Right. Not as much but enough to suggest like, you know, he was basically innovating a lot of forms of noir before noir became like a heavy, heavy genre in, in, in post-war America. Right. Um, so, um, like I said, we, so we have Farley Granger. Like I said, we've got Robert Walker playing Bruno Anthony, Robert Walker's story is pretty sad. He, uh, he was married to Jennifer Jones. Jennifer Jones left him for none other than David O. Selznick. Uh, (laughs) and, uh, (laughs) Uh, If you listen to the secret history of Hollywood podcast, you get the tragic story of Robert Walker told way better than I will ever be able to relay it. But um, after this film is over, um, uh, Robert Walker had a, a, had a big alcohol problem. um, And uh, strangers under train is his last movie. He dies shortly um, before the movie is released. And, uh, Uh, Robert Walker Jr. is interviewed in the featurettes. And if you want to listen to, you know, experience what it's like to be Robert Walker, uh, like to see Robert Walker making Strangers on a Train, it's it's through the firsthand experience of his son, hands down. Um, We'll jump right into the plot because uh, we got a lot to tackle here. (laughs) Um, We open up on a train station. Ah. (laughs) Imagine that. Of course we would. Why wouldn't we? Who knew? It's it's in the mood. I i told you where it would be <laughs> um so um uh, we see two sets of feet diametrically opposed to each other uh approaching the train getting on the train and encountering each other right off the bat we're setting up we're setting up the duality here
2: right and i think it's interesting um you know someone pointed this out in, a, in an interview i was doing about old time cinema and, and uh western specifically they said you know the the good guys wore white cowboy hats and the bad guys wore black cowboy hats and you knew who yeah. was who you know and uh this is kind of that uh, that similar kind of concept right where one of them has got black shoes and one of them has the white on their shoes yeah the uh, so, the
0: the white the the white uh pattern over the black tip yeah
2: exactly yeah and that's kind of it's kind of that same motif and in a way it's a little you know i don't like how obvious it is but back then i don't know that it would have been that obvious so
1: yeah
0: yeah so i mean i think the imagery like i don't know if everybody's gonna pop onto it right away but like it's imagery that's identifiable like it psychologically is gonna trigger you into into basically assuming who your good guy and your bad guy is um exactly but what's interesting is that the white tip uh, the white over the black tip would suggest that uh, not even uh, Farley Granger can be trusted. So, right, <laughs> you know, and the, the and part of the novel is is that, you know, uh, it, it's kind of a spoiler ahead of time, but in the novel, Guy goes through the murder. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, so I automatically, <coughs> there's going to be a difference here, but they meet on the train. Uh, uh, shoes tap accidentally, um. Uh not like today where it's on purpose and in bathroom stalls. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I'll get that humor in. Uh and uh, uh Guy is recognized by no, by none other than um Bruno Anthony. Uh they uh Bruno is very, very interested in uh uh meeting with uh Guy Haynes here and uh just really digging into his personal life. He knows everything about Guy Haynes. He is Guy Haynes super fan right here.
2: And it's it's interesting too because the um you know again it's that kind of suspension of disbelief of like what are the odds that these two people would run into each other. Right. Um or was or is the assumption that he intentionally was kind of trying to uh, engineer this run-in with guy.
0: I feel like it's ambiguous intentionally. Right. Because a thing that should be noted is that Bruno Anthony is kind of like cinema's first real stalker character uh, or at least the most popular form of what we see today in a stalker film Um, obviously he knows way too much about Guy Haynes but now Guy Haynes is a a tennis star so and he is having an affair uh, and uh, is very disenchanted with his uh, promiscuous wife Miriam played by Casey Rogers Um, and uh, we basically know that he's in the spotlight he's he's It's reasonable that Bruno would know about these things. What makes it creepy is that
2: he's a celebrity and athlete. You know, people know, know, his face and what he does. And
0: yeah, what but what's uncomfortable is that Bruno is just very insistent on knowing, uh, knowing more about Guy and also the length that Guy would go. So he basically encourages him to share a meal with him in a private car. And uh, Bruno Anthony uh, talks, amongst other things, of the things he's despondent with and frustrated with. Um, and he, uh, he talks about how he hates his father. He hates his father so much. Uh, it, and it should be note that, you know, Bruno Anthony comes from a wealthy family. Uh, so it's uh, it's another case of a, uh, like much like the dilemma for Murder episode. It's a case of a rich guy who's very pissed off and just embittered. <laughs> Um, Right. Well, and it's
2: interesting, too, because it it leads into a conversation of like, you know, do you want to hear about my ideas for a perfect murder? Which is, again, that kind of callback to um, Shadow of a Doubt and the the father and and his friend talking about how they would murder each other and get away with it.
0: Exactly. So we basically get what if what if what Herbie and Joe are talking about becomes an entire movie? That, right that, yeah kind of it, it's sense. not just shuffled off into the background like charters and caldecott like it is it right. is full <laughs> on in center um and so yes bruno suggests that if uh uh he were to murder miriam guy's uh ex, soon to be ex-wife uh and uh, in return guy would kill bruno's father crisscross is the uh, terminology that Robert Walker uses? Yes, <laughs> to such delight. To such delight, it's a fantastic performance. He is fucking amazing in this movie. And he, he really is. And it is a crime that movie. he wasn't posthumously nominated for an Oscar for this movie. Like it is just <laughs> utterly disastrous for the Academy to have that on its laurels, amongst other things. Uh so you know, Guy's just kind of playing this off. He's just like, ah, now, uh, sure, sure. You're you're a smart guy, Bruno. <laughs>
2: Right yeah he's very much like he's being cordial but he's trying to get away from this clearly yeah. unhinged individual
0: mm-hmm. and Bruno takes it as the go
1: sign
2: <laughs> yeah he takes it as a, oh i'm getting your your wink and your nudge here i'll i'll go take care of your problem
0: yeah and um uh, guy you know he, he he humors him they uh uh he gets off the train um Bruno takes it as uh, takes it as the go signal uh guy forgets his lighter um, with Bruno and Bruno keeps it Uh, and and the lighter is engraved a to G uh, which is to implicate Anne to guy. So it sets up the um, uh, it's, it's our MacGuffin again, but essentially it sets up for an audience that this is Anne's gift to guy, the woman that he's wanting to be with, uh, which in turn also provides further implication that what of what's to come. Uh, Guy meets with Miriam his wife who is now pregnant with somebody else's baby uh, and is suddenly saying she no longer wants a divorce and this uh, sets guy into a rage as they talk in a private booth (laughs) and uh, uh, he leaves very angry and flustered at Miriam calls up Anne to tell her that you know she's backing out of it now she doesn't want the divorce and he says the phrase like I just want to strangle her
2: Right. And it's also good to note, too, that that scene, it's a private booth, but it's um, it's surrounded by glass mostly. So a lot of people see their confrontation. Not only can and they it,
0: not only can they see they can hear it.
2: <laughs> right. This is not and, this is not and it's broken up by another individual. So I, I think that is important, you know, from a story standpoint to let people know, like people have seen him in a physical confrontation with his ex-wife. Yeah. So that's going to be a problem later, and, when... and it
0: further bolsters the the case of the police against Guy later on. Exactly, um, but so Guy makes the statement. I wish I could. I wish I could just strangle her. And later, Br- we see Bruno has arrived in the same town and is stalking uh, Miriam to the amusement park and this is where we kind of really push into the americana now unlike shadow of a doubt where you're dealing with a small town as your major set piece that's kind of scattered so it's not a set piece per se the amusement park is clearly a uh, a set piece
2: right and it's very much the analog for small town america cuz honestly with the with the senator's daughter thing with guys you know love interest and being in in dc essentially it doesn't have that Killer comes to small town, but that kind of, you know, local carnival fair yep. setting where the murder happens is very much small town. And, so, despite the the backdrop of the big city, there's that that little you know where the crime happens is in your backyard still.
0: And the so and and also we should it, it should be mentioned within that in Shadow of a Doubt, the the upending of Americana. Uh, with Joseph Cotton is kind of strewn about the entire movie in smaller ways. In this film, we get a very obvious, um, but I think very wonderful moment where a kid, as Bruno's walking through the carnival following Miriam, uh, a kid in a cowboy outfit is pretending to shoot him, going bang, 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 bang. And Robert Walker just pops this kid's balloon with his cigarette. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's pretty fantastic. Not
0: only is Bruno insane, he is an asshole.
2: Right. (laughs) But (laughs) in case you missed it, this guy's a dick.
0: Yeah, exactly. But in case you also missed it, it's to suggest that your cowboy ethics are not going to save you from the wrath that is Bruno Antony. Uh, (laughs) Very much hitting on the idea of the western mythos, the western, the American hero uh, being befuddled by the machinations of this rich asshole. Um, Right. (laughs) uh, So he stalks her around. Uh, goes through the tunnel of love the tunnel of love sequence very tense You think that something's going to happen in there and it doesn't he keeps quick
2: you- question on that yeah, just sure. from your perspective yeah. i the first few times i saw it i thought she was like i couldn't tell if she was creeped out by him or if she was like oh is this guy interested cuz she's you know very promiscuous what as they've that? set up yeah um yeah. I, what's your take on that
0: my my take on it is is that as sad as it is to say She is set up as promiscuous. He does some show off things to lower her guard.
2: Right. And like with the, um, the, the strength test with the hammer and the, the, you know, bell thing. And
0: yeah, which Robert Walker's got Jason Voorhees strength, which is pretty cool. Um, (laughs) Cause (laughs) I can't imagine Robert Walker actually having the strength to hit that thing all the way up to the top. But, you know, also fifties men probably could have been a lot stronger than we are right now with our weak muscles. But, you know, right. like I think, well, they I,
2: wore those suits with so many layers. It was hard to tell. That, you know?
0: that is true. Like Robert Mitchum, you never knew if he was in shape or out of shape. His family guy told us, <laughs> I mean, <Right. laughs> um, but I think that he's basically trying to lower her, her guard. It, it seems like it because she, the reactions on her suggest that she's uh, uh, intrigued by this man. Right, So much so yeah. that – oh, yeah.
2: I was just saying initially, yeah, it's – sometimes I can't – I couldn't tell if it was intrigue or if she was concerned about him following her. And I think it's part of it is the modern lens I'm looking at it through. I yeah. think that kind of behavior would creep out someone yeah. <laughs> more likely than – Oh, yeah. Than them no, be I, like, ooh, this is interesting. No, but,
0: I, I think it's blending the two too as well because like there can be concern on uh, – he's – it's almost as if though the 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 intention is trying to mix the two. Right.
2: right yeah, like I mean, like she knows it's maybe suspect but also she likes the attention, so Yeah.
0: So I think yeah. it's a combination of the two, but like I, again like if I had to lean on the other one, I think the I, I think the intention of the filmmaker is to suggest that she's intrigued so she lets her guard down so that when she's finally uh cornered in the dark uh near the lovers island uh the lighter goes up and he says, is your name Miriam? She goes, yes. And then strangle town. Um, (laughs) and that wonderful shot, uh, of the glasses showing the murder.
2: Yeah. The reflection in the glasses is really, yeah. Which is, uh, clever.
0: Yeah. Which is a process shot and it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's another example of hitch using, two different plates to essentially tell a story. It's not as it's a special effect, but not, you know, your traditional, what we know today, special effect. Um, so Miriam's dead, um, uh, guy is, uh, uh,
2: uh, sorry on a train at the time. Yeah. He's on, which is interesting.
0: Yeah. Because
2: it would be an alibi in theory. Yeah. Except (laughs) twist
0: (laughs) twist there there's a there's a drunken asshole a uh, professor who's bragging about his night that won't remember it later on exactly uh, yep <laughs> and he gets to um the senator's house uh and uh uh bruno oh, well, well guy arrives home first and bruno goes to him to inform him that miriam is dead and uh shows him the glasses and uh, now he is insisting, now you've got to honor your end of the bargain that we clearly made. <laughs> right.
2: Well, and this goes into the, um, you know, kind of a similar thing with uh shadow of a doubt where you now have a character who's aware that a crime has occurred, but they don't know that they, or they feel like they can't go to the police for one reason or another. Yeah. In shadow of a doubt, it's, it's my uncle and I want to believe the best of him. and, I don't want to believe that they're capable of this. And in this, it's, you know, my current wife, but hopefully soon to be ex-wife has been murdered and it's going to look like I did it. So I can't go to anybody.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Now, and the difference, the key difference in this is that we're, we're playing upon, uh, the, uh, extraordinary man in extraordinary circumstances, or also the, the, you know, the wrong man on the run, uh, which is a constant theme throughout Hitchcock's work. Uh, obviously the wrong man with henry fonda is like the most obvious example of that in terms of like a, not even just a title but also a concept um right. uh which is a fantastic movie if we don't talk about it on this show I'll try to do a mini review that movie's amazing um but uh uh so he goes to the morton's house to anne's house uh where the senator played by leo g carroll another hitchcock staple um uh and informs Uh, And Senator Morton informs Guy that his wife's been murdered. But, you know, we know that Guy already knows, but he pretends that he doesn't know. Um, uh, Anne's sister, Barbara, played by Pat Hitchcock, um, clearly points out that the police will think Guy did it. Uh, Touch on Pat Hitchcock real quick. I really like her in this movie. I really do. I, I, I obviously love her in Psycho for her, you know, moment uh in the in the uh real estate office but she's like really good in this movie like she's very yeah she psyched.
2: really is i i found her to stand out quite a bit as a character in this one
0: yeah and she really she really plays upon like she she under she clearly got dramatic lessons not just from the royal academy but also from watching her her parents work and right. the example is exemplified here she's just very engaged she cl- she feels so much like she's and she's uh, 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 R- Ruth Roman's sister like that. Mm-hmm. You just they there is a connection there. You can tell it, especially in that scene later on where um, she's crying to her. Um, but, yeah, so uh, the police come. They question they get guy to question him. And he uh, can't confirm the alibi, which is um, the professor who was drunk uh, on the train Uh and uh this this his professor by the way was John Brown who played Digby O'Dell on The Life of Riley so it's interesting <laughs> to see him in real life um right uh, and uh the the police can't arrest guy yet though um they assigned uh, they assigned people to shadow him essentially throughout um throughout the course of his days so that they cannot flee while he cannot flee while they uh they investigate him so bruno starts following guy around washington Um,
2: Which wouldn't his tails have noticed he had a tail? Seems likely.
0: Well, you know, they're so caught up in Guy Haines' life that that's true. Hennessy is very interested in Guy's life, (laughs) very interested in Guy. He is like he's so supportive that he's going to let him finish that match at the end of the movie. Right. Yeah. Uh, Like it's it's pretty like, by the way, spoiler alert, we're going back and forth here. It's 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 just a big old party of strangers on a train. If you haven't seen this movie, what's your problem? Um, But uh, uh, so um, uh, and like and amongst the things like, you know, guys going through his day at the tennis court, we get that beautiful suspension of reality where Mm. everybody else is looking at the ball. But Robert Walker's only looking at guy. Right. That just it's, – it's, it's so obviously choreographed. It's so obviously super staged, but it's just fucking creepy and unsettling.
2: Yeah, um, definitely.
0: And it, and it sets up that, that disassociation from reality that Hitchcock will do from time to time where something is clearly staged, but it works so well inside the world. Like it right. fits in this movie, it's the one like it's a it's a non noir thing in in a comfortably placed in a noir film um, right yeah, definitely so uh you know and um uh uh Barbara actually encounters guy uh, uh, encounters Bruno at the club uh and Bruno's pretending to uh I, I, he's speaking French, and she mistakes him for a Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> And he says, he's like, it's, uh, it's Mr. Anthony and he's not French. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most important thing to relay to her. Not anything else, but obviously nothing else. Yeah. (laughs) I can't do that because obviously then we go into the scene that we'll get it to the party, which we get into this party. Bruno follows him to that party, introduces himself to Anne, uh, prior to this too. So he's in the party. Bruno decides to demonstrate what it's like to strangle somebody. (laughs) Uh, And it plays into his coyish attitude uh, when it comes to murder and uh, that kind of macabre uh, tone. Um, And, uh, you know, he's clearly an unrestrained character. Prior to this, we do see him back at home in his house with his mother, who's a painting fanatic and just being coddled to death by his mother, who cannot imagine she, that he would do anything wrong. He we set up even more that he hates his father, and just right. it, just setting up further and further Robert Walker's entitlement in the movie. Uh, um,
2: and I think you said this earlier, too. Her character is very similar to the mother in Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah. yeah and just I, her behavior and demeanor and uh, very, unfortunately... Kind of clueless about what's going on around her. I think she's uh, more
0: in tune with what Bruno is than uh, Emma is, but right. I think that she's she's in much more denial. Like it's right, weird. Yeah, like definitely. she's she's somehow even more worse than Emma is, because Emma yeah. is kind of ignorant by circumstance. She's just intentionally saying, "Oh." You know, my, my son oh, wanted you're to so blow up
2: the White you, you House.
0: Know. How charming. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, a terrorist plot. How wonderful. <laughs> um,
2: How positively hilarious.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, and and, and oh then and, and he said that line, what would the president think? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> and then I just couldn't help but laugh at my wonderfully brilliant son. Anyway, <laughs> um, so he decided to demonstrate to this uh, woman – Uh, Played by Norma Varden, who does a great job in this scene, too. How to strangle someone. uh, (laughs) Puts her hands, put his hands around her neck. And as he's starting to strangle her, he sees Barbara. Barbara, uh, played by Pat Hitchcock, wears glasses and looks not too dissimilar from uh, Miriam. So uh, he basically blacks out, I guess it would be.
2: Yeah, it's almost like he gets caught up in the moment of his initial murder.
1: Yeah, and, and
2: it, loses himself in this moment where it's not supposed to be one, but almost becomes one.
0: And it trigger and it triggers that kind of that 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 memory of what happened. And it's it's been identified as like this moment to empathize with Bruno is just like he is clearly sick because right? Why would he identify? Why would he identify if he knows who he clearly killed? clearly he has an associative disorder of sorts or like and and amongst other things where he's you know tapping into these things and creating coincidences in his own head
2: right and very ahead of its time too in in the assessment of a killer's mind right because that's those kind of patterns and things yeah. like we talked about earlier, aren't earlier aren't established until much later yeah. in uh, in human history but um it is interesting they kind of already you know, we're aware of that.
0: Yeah. We're aware of it through the narrative of film, which is kind of explaining it to it as best as we can. I mean, mm-hmm. these pieces end up becoming uh much more uh, relevant down the line in the sixties with psycho and, uh, and even frenzy in the seventies. Um, mm-hmm. But he's already working with the bits and pieces of it. It's just that he doesn't, uh... the problem with Hitchcock movies in terms of their psychological bent is that obviously they're never going to be medically accurate. Because oh, they, yeah, yeah of course <laughs> because they hit in a period where there's nothing clearly diagnosable or like a terminology for it, but he gets right. closer than any other filmmaker to tackling this subject, uh, in this area. Yeah, for era. sure.
2: Um, well, and, and just like getting deeper into the character and what caused, you know, or I shouldn't say caused, but getting into the character and what, you know, uh, showcasing something about them that is clearly, you know, broken essentially.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so in and, and within that you know, we get a we get an earlier version of it with Joseph Cotton in Shadow of a Doubt and in this film we get the more uh advanced version of it where there's even more depth to it because Charlie is not fully explained beyond like uh, vague uh notions. Right. Robert Walker gets a much more specific lens. It doesn't get a clinical analysis, but it gets really in deep.
2: Um, right. Well, and it it even like, you know, to that end feels like killing the, the, um, wife was clearly the first, first time he'd killed someone, yeah. you know, but he's and just been so there was something about that and, rush. You know, so when he shows, he's like, here's how you would do it. You know, he kind of loses control again because it, it's something he actually, uh, has discovered he enjoys. Yeah, exactly. And know? so
0: therefore it's, it's almost like he's, it, he's confused as he is terrifying at the same time. Right. Um, uh, Barbara goes and cries to Anne that, you know, he was strangling me, you know, which she's great in that scene. She's just fucking great. Oh, it's so good in oh, that God. scene. That's, I
2: um, mean, and, and that she kind of realized what was going on too, which, you know, of course he's not breaking eye contact with her, which makes it pretty obvious, but yeah, um, it is a very um, impactful and especially her performance after is like, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I mean, I don't like, and it's, it's hard to wrap my head around like when this movie was made, you know, cause you just think like that stuff, it's so good. Like, how did they think of that that yeah. long ago? And, yeah. and that we're not, we still can't like top it these days, you know, we're still kind of redoing those kinds of moments. Yeah.
0: And, and, you know, this must've made Hitchcock proud to be like, ah, oh, she fucking gets it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, and, uh, confronts um guy and is just like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> just, right. Guy's like, alright, here's what happened. I met this asshole on a train <laughs> and he thinks we're going to swap murders. Clearly we're not, Anne, but somehow he decided that this was a go sign. Um right. <laughs> And you know, and so Bruno ups his ante uh, as Anne now knows what's going on, but she also knows that like, there's, there's they can't do anything about it yet. Yet, right. So, um, Bruno sends Guy a pistol, uh, a key, and a map showing you know where the father's room is. And I wanted to point this out really quick. Um, uh, the 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 blueprints uh, or map, I should say, of uh, Bruno to Guy. I I'm wondering with with Bruno's resources at his disposal. Obviously, he has the wealth of like five hundred brats. How could he not afford elaborate blueprints like Jay and Silent Bob, two stoners in New Jersey, when they wanted to sabotage LaFourge, the mall cop? You know, like, (laughs) it's like, it's a simple doodle. It's not a big issue in the movie. I just couldn't help but notice it. I'm just like, man, like. Did he draw this with a crayon? (laughs) With
2: with the amount of wealth they have, it was probably a custom build. They have the blueprints laying around the house somewhere. Come on.
0: He could have sent an an elaborate thing. If you're serious about this, Robert Walker, get me technical details. Yes. Don't don't draw it with the crayons that you clearly draw other, like, murder plots with in your (laughs) bedroom. Right. Um, But no, so Guy basically decides to pretend to go along with this plan and... In a scene that in the novel would turn into, you know, guy going forward with the killing and 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 basically embracing that duality. The intention here is, is that guy uh, uh, doesn't intend to go along with it. Um, And there's uh, there was actually alternate shots, apparently, where, you know, the gun was situated a different way to suggest that he might actually go through with this. But mm-hmm. through a series of wonderfully shot noir sequences, he gets into the room, and he's going to alert Bruno's father, uh, only for Bruno to turn on the light and basically go surprise. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: I knew he would
0: have the balls to go through with this. Like, <laughs> um, but it actually was is like I was trying to tell you my father was out, but you were s- in such a hurry. <laughs> like, <laughs> um. And within this moment, we can kind of touch on the homoerotic subtext of whatnot. Like, these two are playing a dance with each other. Like, it's Robert Walker flirting with Guy.
1: Like
2: Yeah, I mean, even hardcore. from the initial, like, foot tap at the very beginning when they meet, it's very, it is it does seem like there's something else happening there. And it, it kind of sucks in the historical context because it's that, that idea of like, let's vilify the other, you know, let's yeah. vilify the person who's different than the norm. Exactly. Um, it's, it's nice that they never outright come out and say that, but it is unfortunate that they use that as a, as a part of his character in yes. this situation.
0: Yeah. And, and, and we've talked about this in previous episodes, especially with rope, because that's what rope is. Uh, that mm-hmm. the movie rope is about this specific angle. Um, what I've said in the, uh, in those past episodes and I'll stand by it is, is that unfortunately as it is of the time. What's interesting is, is that Hitchcock is one of the few filmmakers who will tread into that water, which I think it's interesting that, you know, he was able to get away with
2: it. Right. Yeah. And again, I don't, you know, different times, obviously we, we figure things out and we become more open-minded to ideas in that. Uh, so I don't discredit them yeah. for it, but it's hard to not oh, yeah. point it out in a modern context. Yes.
0: From a modern lens, this is like Robert Walker is very is treated like a stereotypical homosexual villain. And that is not that is not something I want to see today from my villains whatsoever or even and most certainly not from portrayals of homosexuals in film. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so he's so uh Bruno basically just says, like, well, I've just got to eliminate you now because you're just going to keep being a thorn in my side. And uh, <laughs> he follows Guy out of the house. Guy calls his bluff and leaves. And in that and in this silent moment, it's one of the most suspenseful moments in the movie, in my opinion, where he's just walking downstairs. And you think that guy like that, that Bruno might actually do it.
2: Yeah, definitely. It It is that moment of like. There's a lot of tension built into that scene where you really genuinely don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And um, so he I says, feel like it could have gone either way there.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It it could. It, and it's drawn out in such a way that, like, again, don't tell me black and white movies aren't interesting because that moment's scary. That is right. super scary. Um, and so Bruno's like, I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to punish you for what you did. And um, Anne goes to Bruno's house to uh, plead to the mother, like, hey, your son's fucking insane. And his mother's like, oh, no. Do you like painting? <laughs> 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 and so, but she basically just shrugs it off, says, no, no, no. Uh, she leaves. Bruno gets into the uh, scene and basically taunts Anne with the the fact of the cigarette lighter. Uh, and Bruno doesn't know that Anne knows what Bruno did. Right. And so Bruno's playing off the innocent routine of like, you know, Guy wanted me to go grab the lighter from the um, uh, from the amusement park because it would implicate him. And so he's she's aware now of the cigarette lighter. And um, uh, Guy, uh, as, as they meet up again basically adds it all up that Bruno's going to go plant that lighter uh, at the island. Right. And so he needs to get over to um, uh, over to the town uh, where the uh, where the amusement park is. But he has to first finish a match. And, you know, in any other film, you would probably say, like, well, why do I need this distraction before going to the action? Well, uh, he has to do it in order to not aroused the suspicion of his tails um, who are also his number one fans um, or at least Hennessy is the (laughs) other cops kind of like, why are you going to let him finish this match? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is kind of like, yeah, if somebody's wanted for questioning, you don't let them finish the game. Right. Like that doesn't, that doesn't happen, but whatever, you know, it's a, it's a fucking movie. Just enjoy it. Zach. Anyway. (laughs) Well, and I
2: think like to some extent, I don't, I find it somewhat believable because uh, at least for the time and maybe I'm wrong, the portrayal in cinema of that era of society is there's this kind of, like, civility and respect that even, you know, oh, you're a criminal, but, yeah. you know, you're this known athlete, you have a, a match, we're going to let you finish that match, um, and yeah, then we'll, you know, we'll arrest you surreptitiously after, so it actually, doesn't become a thing, you know? And, and again, yeah. I don't know if that was speaks to the time at all, or if it just happens to be the... Um, you know, the perception of it because of how the time is portrayed in cinema and and books and things from that era. But, uh, to me that didn't really bother me. Yeah, Uh,
0: no, actually I just remembered OJ was notified that he was going to be apprehended and, uh, we got a Bronco chase out of it. Yeah. So, so, you know, know?
2: (laughs) so there is a precedent for this, right? (laughs) No Bronco Um, chase in this movie though, which is really too bad. I was looking forward to that.
0: No, yeah, and O.J. didn't say crisscross um, at the trial at any point, so um, you know. Are you, you sure?
2: Can't... We should go back through the transcripts.
0: Oh yeah, every let's just let's just watch all the footage while we're at. <laughs> like, because I'm fairly sure it's not in O.J. Made America, which is a documentary everybody should watch. But <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so we basically have the cross cutting between uh, Bruno going back to plant the lighter and this tennis match, and talk about the. Most suspenseful tennis match in cinema history. Right, um, you know, like it's just it's it's pretty. Like I think it's um, Richard Schickel, who is <laughs> always looks like he's on the verge of collapsing <laughs> in an interview. <laughs> <laughs> From exhaustion or uh drinking, I have no idea uh, he's a he's a smart guy I just he looks so exhausted every time I see him in an interview, but he's just like i'm I'm a tennis player, and that's some pretty damn good as close as you can get tennis in a movie. Hitchcock constructed that from actual from other footage and just inserts of guy and the other um, player uh hitting the rackets so it's a it's a con it's a conglomeration of archive footage and the actors interesting and it creates a Pretty damn good tennis match for Phil.
2: It does, yeah. And it's funny because, um, I don't know that you could pull that off today. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I Like, using think that good, kind unless... of stock footage. And not just because it couldn't be done, but because it would be difficult to, um, to do and have someone not notice.
0: Yeah, and, or, and, and matching it up would be a nightmare. Like, I mean, like, if you watch, um, if you watch uh Leo McCarey's film Duck Soup, there's a wonderful scene where, you know, Groucho's calling up the armies of the world and you, you see stock footage of animals and uh, you know, athletes running to the rescue and it, it it works only in that kind of movie of that era. It cannot happen anywhere else. Like right. you can't do it today. Definitely. Um, with this specific thing, I think our closest example of it would try to be would, would say I, I would I would say the Rise of Skywalker controversy with um, uh, Carrie Fisher's character uh, with Leia right. right I'm talking as if though I don't know what Star Wars is um, <laughs> but just utilizing that footage from Force Awakens and, and cross-cutting it with people on set for Rise of Skywalker um, and people obviously noticed it
2: right and so yeah. I think
0: it is yeah it's a testament to that. this you can't really get away with this right now <laughs> right
2: well and it's it's hard I mean I I understand the um you know, the difficulty when you lose someone midway through shooting something. How do you how do you handle that? Um, right. And I think there were other ways to do it. But, you know, here we are. So
0: <laughs> We are not a Star Wars podcast. We've established that Hitchcock clearly advised George Lucas on Star Wars. But he did, but this is not a Star Wars podcast. Nope. <laughs> um, in our own little in my in my own little warped mind. Um, so anyway um, we're doing the cross cutting back and forth between the match as that's going on Bruno drops the lighter clumsily into a sewer (laughs) (laughs) and it's the most tense you don't want him to lose it's weird
2: (laughs) yeah well I think the I think the you don't want him to lose the lighter because that him having possession of the lighter proves that yeah guy was not involved so if he if he loses it then where's, where's the evidence, you know? So it's, you want him to get it, but not because you want him to get away with it. It's so there's something that can tie him to it.
0: Yeah. And, and I will, I will, I will support that. And then double into, into the fact that, you know, when you talk about a character like uh, Bruno Antony, it's the emergence of this character that because he's so out there and so like engaging as a villain, there's that secret part of you, like, and it's the same part of you that watches a Friday the 13th movie to watch somebody get killed. You're just like, oh, 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 oh I, I kind of hope he gets away with it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and again, these films speak to the dark parts of our minds as well as, like, our, you know, our moral center and whatnot. And again, taps into the soul of America, which, you know, outward moral cent- moral crust with a rich dark center full of uh, (laughs) trauma and despair and mistakes that we don't acknowledge. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) This is America. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm just making it obvious now, aren't I? But Bruno gets back to the carnival. He asks the hot dog vendor what time it gets dark over there. And he says, what's your hurry? (laughs) I like that. That I, I love that the amusement park is now distinctly designed to upset bruno (laughs) right (laughs) Every single he has to wait in line (laughs) he's getting sass from the hot dog vendor (laughs) he's getting into he's it 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 adds to the suspense obviously but if you watch it from a modern lens it's just like man he is just being put upon this guy (laughs) and it's all in the service of making sure farley granger gets there in time and it's and there's also that scene when farley granger um is on the train and he sees two people engaging in a conversation, not unlike Bruno and him engaged in at the beginning of the movie. And he just looks away. Right. <laughs> like he's just like, ah, God, no, no, nope,
2: don't not doing it.
0: <laughs> and he's like, yeah, that's right. Sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Strangers on a train too, those people. <laughs> <laughs> fucking, fucking write it. <laughs> fucking write it, Whitfield. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, uh, Guy makes it to the amusement park and uh, yells out for Bruno. Um, they go on a chase that leads them to a, a carousel that then uh, proceeds to spin out of control because the levers get broken <laughs> because uh, a pistol is shot. I'm trying to remember. It's the pistol is shot uh, and it kills the operator. Oh, Guy, uh, a police officer shoots at Guy, but it kills the carousel operator on accident. <laughs> and the guy just tumbles classic. over the lever classic <laughs> oh no i'm dead but i'm going to take everybody out with me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so the carousel spinning out of control this set piece is amazing uh the the uh it, it's noted in the behind the scenes that the one time hitchcock was scared on this set of something going wrong was there's um there's a moment in this film amidst the battle going on between guy and bruno um the police are trying to figure out how to stop the carousel. And the most heroic old man ever, like <laughs> ever, like this guy is uh, just a badass. He just goes like, I can stop it. That guy had to walk, had to walk under or uh, crawl underneath an actual rotating carousel. If something goes wrong, Hitch got blood on his hands.
2: Like right. <laughs> I wondered about that because it didn't look like. In the scene right after, after he shuts it down, you can tell it's very much a projection on a screen um, with people, you know, that it's not shot simultaneously. Um, But that scene very much looked like he was actually crawling underneath something that was spinning above him. So that's interesting to find out it was like a legitimately dangerous situation.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, It actually, uh, here... um, I was going to say um he he worked with uh the editor on this film was William H uh, Ziegler um and they uh shot a majority of this um uh w- with process sequences and also just a, a, a an actual big ass carousel mm-hmm. um for the explosion that happens mm-hmm. um Hitchcock took a toy carousel and photographed it uh blown up by a small charge of explosives so that portion is more controlled but there is that bigger piece that's revolving around that, that guy's going to have to crawl under. If something goes wrong, this guy is just toast. <laughs> like, right. But he gets Jeez. it, obviously. And, you know, the, the most courageous old man uh, uh, ever, ever put to film uh, saves, the, saves the day technically. Um, and, uh, and actually, uh, the, uh, with that explosion, um, Hitchcock had that shot undercranked uh, to accelerate the action. Okay. So it's not so it's not um, the 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 uh, people had to actually crawl under the spinning ride. Um, but he but it's still moving. So if something goes wrong, it falls on him. Mm-hmm. But that shot, he undercranks it so that it accelerates the action of that carousel.
2: Right. right. Um,
0: so the carousel explodes and tumbles and everybody's. Plop dead on the gro- uh, Plopped on the ground. I don't know how many people die in this carousel.
1: Uh,
2: <laughs> it seems like more than one should have. So. I th-
0: it's amazing that Farley Granger survives, let alone Bruno Anthony, as long as he does. Right. Uh, I-, I mean, like this is carnage on a level that we don't see outside of the Invisible Man blowing up stock footage train and thus being the highest kill count in the monster universe. Um, so he. He basically goes over to Bruno to be like, tell him what happened. It can, as long as you can speak, tell him what happened. Right. And Bruno's not going to give it up. <laughs> he's, yeah. He's, he's still... going to continue this game until his last breath. And then, you know, within the last uh, gasp of it, the lighter is revealed to be in Bruno's hands. So the police get it and they put two and two together and it's assumed that all has been well. The last shot of the movie has Anne uh, going to meet with him and they go on a train together and a priest <laughs> looks up from his paper and goes, excuse me, aren't you Guy Haynes? And Guy Haynes is about to speak before Anne and him look at each other and then walk away, <laughs> leaving this man of God to then basically curse them forever in the pits of hell because that's you don't ignore a priest on a train
1: <laughs> <laughs> i
2: do i do kind of love that ending though because it's very much that you know it's cheeky but it's it's that acknowledgement of like this didn't end well last time i talked to yeah, a random exactly. person and on the train
0: what's funny that you bring that up is because there is a preview version that was originally called the uh english version but it's not english it's just this is a a version that was previewed two times, and it originally ends with Anne getting the phone call that everything's going to be okay, and uh, then it fades out there. This scene was added at the insistence of um, Jack Warner in the studio, and it's, uh, it's one of the smartest Jack L. Warner decisions I've ever seen because that <laughs> this ending definitely works for the movie they've created. If you were going to do a direct adaptation of Highsmith's novel, obviously the entire ending of this movie doesn't make sense. Right. But because of the story we're telling where Farley Granger is a good guy, this is the best solution to the movie. Yeah,
2: definitely. Um, And I think it's, you know, it's worth noting too that, um, you know, I I mentioned it before, but how the lighter in this situation, when it's revealed in the hand of uh, Bruno is, you know, is what uh, lets the police know that Guy is innocent of this, you know, that he's being set up. Um, similarly, the, uh, Emerald ring in shadow of a doubt is what lets, uh, uncle Charlie know that, you know, he's, uh, young Charlie's not going to give this up until he's gone. And so they, they both play that kind of pivotal moment in the movie of that realization, but in very different ways. Yeah. Um, but it's just interesting how those, those objects are used to such effect. And, and also like the similarities in that they both have, you know, initials engraved on them and, yeah. um, you know, all of that just kind of plays into, you know, the, I guess the parallels between the two stories and what yeah. they,
0: it's, and again, like, and as we've been talking about throughout the entire episode, like these films are, are connected spiritually, um, How often it's discussed in terms of the bigger realm, I don't know, but they are eerily similar, and yet their differences are what determine uh, not just the time that they are made, but also our appreciation for it. Because I would argue that Strangers on a Train is probably much more beloved than Shadow of a Doubt by the mainstream.
2: Probably I would I would say so.
0: And I would think that Strangers on a Train the reason why is because it's <laughs> it's imagery is a lot more on the uh, not on the nose but it's it's a lot more modern. And Shadow of a Doubt is working within a reserved aesthetic of the period where they're having to break boundary whereas in Shadow of a Doubt he's already broken that boundary so now he can push it more toward the modern aesthetic. And obviously A lot of that macabre notion is things that he further pushes into in Psycho and then Frenzy before he, you know, ends with Family Plot. So, like, he's always constantly pushing that boundary. But these two films specifically are very, very tied together through theme, through MacGuffin use, through character, uh, through through even plot to a certain extent of just terms of, like, how do we how do we stick menace into American society? Um, The right. um, I mean,
2: even to the, the end uh, climactic moment where you have the two people, um, you know, wrestling uh, on a, you know, speeding object, Um, (laughs) you know, it's like, there's, there's these like little similarities, but then again, what I appreciate with what he does is that, you know, in the, in Shadow of a Doubt, it's a female protagonist with a male antagonist. Yeah. Um, in this, it's two male antagonists. So this this idea that you know, um, it it really, it can be anybody. You know, he's not always using a Cary Grant type character as his main character. No. no and no, I, I feel like a lot of modern filmmakers and modern directors fall into these these patterns of using the same the same character or the same archetype of a character or the same, you know, visual representation of a character for all of their leads. Yeah. And it's, it's refreshing to see refreshing is the wrong word because these are older films, but it's nice to see that even in like older Hollywood, there was some, there was more diversity in at least with what Hitchcock was doing with the kind of focal characters in, in the films.
0: Yeah. I think if anything, the similarities lie within the psychological and not within the outer tropes specifically because they're right. not you you're never dealing with like you know uh, i mean i i honestly think Farley Granger um as guy is uh, is much less uh equipped to fight um Bruno Anthony uh, uh apart from let's say uh young charlie because i think young charlie's a little bit more clever and smart
2: <laughs> right yeah she's she's much more clever it feels like guy is very um uh, almost clueless, like not clueless, but you know what I mean. He's not as clever as she is,
0: right? And and um, now part of that also is with Shadow of a Doubt. You're dealing with like, well, Charlie and Charlie are connected because of the thing we talked about with telepathy, but, right? <laughs> um, but uh, and and yeah, the the as as far as like that diversity of character, you know, directors. It seems like with the with everything that exploded in the 70s um, onward, directors have an identity, and so they match their actors to that identity as best they can. And I'm I'm struggling to think of a, a director who really uh, tosses it up in the air a lot, um, because it does seem like they all kind of fall into a pattern, like Quentin Tarantino characters are Quentin Tarantino characters, and they... We, we can. He may do something different with them each time, but they're essentially similar characters.
2: Right. And, right. I, and I think we, we see that, yeah, a lot of modern directors. It's like there's a lot of, you know, it's like, oh, if, if a director has a fast-talking, quippy lead character, every movie they make, their lead character is a fast-talking, right. quippy character. Yeah. It just kind of falls into that. And that's Um, certainly
0: not disrespect to Quentin Tarantino because I will I will say that each film he finds a way to make it interesting for the audience who's coming in new or coming in for another dose of Tarantino stuff. Like once upon a time in Hollywood, Rick Dalton is not a typical Tarantino character. Like he's a self-loathing, you know, mess. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm. Right.
0: (laughs) um, But, uh, you know, so this movie uh, premieres in 1951 um, before. Uh, after the death of uh, Robert Walker, R.E.P. And it receives mixed reviews upon release. Uh, Variety said, performance-wise, the cast comes through strongly. Granger is excellent as the harassed young man innocently involved in murder. Ruman's role is a nice, understanding girl is a switch for her, uh, and she makes it warmly effective. And Walker's role has extreme color, and he projects it deftly. But then we have Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, Bosley. You don't want to talk about how Bosley really likes Shadow of a Doubt, right? So here's, here's how I know that Bosley Crowther doesn't. Um, he's either very bored with Hitchcock or just doesn't uh, know how to really critique. Because he says about this film, Mr. Hitchcock, again, is tossing a crazy murder story in the air and trying to con us into thinking that it will stand up without support. Perhaps there will be those in the audience who will likewise be terrified by the villainies the, by the villain's dark darkly menacing warnings and by Mr. Hitchcock's sleekly melodramatic tricks. But for all that his basic premise of fear fired by menace is so thin and so utterly convincing that the story just does not stand. Now now Aaron we Aaron we talked about how these two films are essentially running on very, very similar tracks, right? Train tracks, right. if you will. And yet somehow the same man who was going, shadow of a Doubt's it's incredible, is suddenly looking at Strangers on a Train going like, meh. <laughs> right. <laughs> well,
2: because honestly, I, it's so weird to me because I think the murder plot in Strangers on a Train even holds up today. This idea of like, oh, you know, we met by crazy random happenstance yeah. and I'm going to kill the person you want and you kill the person I want and no one will know because nothing connects the two of us. We still like,
0: do this to this, to this day. Like we right, still like, have this trope all over the thriller genre and even through the gangster genre, to be honest. too. <laughs> like, right. So um, to
2: me, it's like, that doesn't seem like and even stepping outside of the idea of we've seen it a lot to this day. To me, it seems like a perfectly viable and well thought out plot particularly with how connected he is you know the uh, guy is to who you know bruno murders it's it's his you know wife um who he was supposed to be getting a divorce from who suddenly doesn't want a divorce now and and guy being you know not a completely inept protagonist knows that people saw him in confrontation with his ex-wife that he told his you know the the woman he's seeing now over the phone that he just wanted to strangle her like you know, there he's aware that it does not look good for him <laughs> in this situation. Like to me it's a very reasonable, like, I don't know if I should go to the police or not kind of moment. Um yeah.
0: I, I I I think that Patricia Highsmith's opinion might might give Crow, Bosley Crowther some levity here. Yeah. So Patricia Highsmith, author of the novel. Um, I'm going to read from the Wikipedia entry because it covers a couple different quotes here. So Patricia Highsmith, Patricia Highsmith's opinion of the film varied over time. She initially praised it, writing, I am pleased in general, especially with Bruno, who held the movie together as he did the book. Uh, but later in life, still praising Robert Walker. She criticized the casting of Ruth Roman and out- Hitchcock's decision to turn Guy from an architect into a tennis player. And the fact that Guy did not murder Bruno's father as he did in the novel. So Crowther is basically saying, I've seen this before, right? Right. Now, if he had followed the novel to the letter, he probably would have been singing a different tune because that turn for Bruno or for Guy is very essential to the duality that we're dealing with in this story, regardless of how it ends now. And my guess is is that it probably would have been a more challenging film of the era. It also would have never gotten made because you would not, you could not get away with your hero suddenly shooting somebody. Right. Yeah. He,
2: he had to be in that time. You needed to have someone who was not morally gray.
0: Yeah. And it's, and it's Hitchcock put into a corner that he's been put in before with stuff like suspicion um, and other projects that he tried to get off the ground that had this similar bent. It's not until 1960 where he's just like, let me put $800,000 into this trash horror book that I found in the airport and I will make it fucking blow your mind. <laughs> Cause that's also- when we get, that's when you get Marion Crane suddenly being killed and suddenly this nice motel man <laughs> is suddenly your ki- killer. So. Right he had to change these things over time. It's right. he's it's why he's the innovator and these are the stepping stones towards it.
2: Right. And um, I think too like when you look at um something like you know the the author's critique of changing guy's profession from an architect to a tennis player uh, to me it seems more realistic that bruno would recognize an athlete on a train than an architect. Right? Uh, like Like, he's more in the spotlight as an athlete. So from a storytelling perspective, I think it works better that he's an athlete than an architect.
0: But you forget architects were the shit back in the 40s. Like, everybody (laughs) was just Reigning over architects. Like, (laughs) it's one of the reasons why How I Met Your Mother uh like the ted character i find suspicious at times because i'm just like there's no way an architect's this successful like or this famous in this day and age like the way he's aspiring to it so
2: right yeah like that's that's not a thing that happens anymore but it's yeah i I guess at the time i could see it but exactly um,
0: but it's fine now because neil patrick harris says legendary so right
2: (laughs) so we're all good yeah so that that show don't even get me started on how i met your mother but anyway.
0: This is not the How I Met
2: Your Mother podcast. No, this is the wrong podcast. We'll no, do that no, later. No, no, That'll be
0: on the Jason Segel career review that I'll do like 40 <laughs> years later. <Jesus. laughs> I will do it. Oh, um, God.
2: Do it. I'll come on that, too. We'll talk, <laughs> talk Jason Segel. There's
0: going to be a five-hour episode on The Muppets and how it's awesome. But anyway, <laughs> so that, that wraps up this um, noir double feature of things that are crisscrossing and yet connecting all together at the same time. Um, so after watching shadow of a doubt for the first time and kind of talking this over, like, do you still find strangers on a train to be superior for you? Or is that, and then I'm assuming if so, that might just be cause it's, you know, connected to you a little more, but
2: yeah, I, I would say my preference is probably still strangers just because it's, you know, kind of the, the original, um, of his works that I I'd seen and been like, Oh, this is super cool and and interesting and a good story. And, um, but you know, seeing, um, shadow of a doubt, I can understand why he says it's one of his favorite movies that he's done because it really is a very, like all around just a tight and well-made movie. And honestly, up until the very end, I wasn't sure he was going to get caught, or not even caught, you know, but you don't know what's going to happen. I yeah. I even had a moment where I thought, oh, man, he's going to end up killing young Charlie and getting away, and, like, that's going to be the end, and we don't know what ends up <laughs> happening to him.
0: No, um, they won't let me do that. Yeah, so I, really I just... Mean. <laughs> I,
2: I will say for that, I found myself really on edge up until the very last moment where he falls in front of the oncoming train of just, like, what's going to happen? How is he going to get caught? How is this going to resolve in a, in a way that's not you know unsatisfying right um so i think it was that's really a very like masterfully done film and and story um but again yeah just the you know it's hard to yeah it's hard to to ignore strangers strangers on a train it's got robert
0: walker in it and that performance is is I don't want to say it's Joker level, but it's Joker level.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, it's like the it's like anything else. If you have a, a book or a video game or a TV show that you loved uh, as a younger person, um, and then you find, a, you know, the same, a similar thing from the same artist or a similar artist that's, you know, purportedly the better version of something, you're still always going to have that kind of fondness for that thing yeah. you grew up with, you know? Yeah. Um, oh, oh, absolutely. It's, and that's kind of how I feel about this. Like I'd seen it early enough in my life to kind of form this connection of like, oh man, that's a really clever story. Yeah. You know.
0: And, and it's not. And and yo, know, believe me. Like I mean, I saw both of these later on. Like so they weren't my informative Hitchcocks, but so uh, my lens was more grafted towards like, okay, what like I was looking at it from an adult lens. Uh, Shadow of a Doubt for me is is. Is my my pick for of the of these two, but mm-hmm. I could easily watch these both back to back again because they they work so well in tandem. But Shadow of a Doubt, I feel like it has this odd feeling of being the perfect entrance uh, into the Hitchcock of America. Um, and on top of that, though, let's disregard the American element that we've been talking about this whole time. This is a straight up great. Uh, a great psychological thriller di- diving into the minutiae of small-town living and what happens when a menace creeps in. doesn't have to be America. It could be anything. could be right. simple as a monster entering a small European village uh, in Transylvania, for all we know. It's, it's, it's the translation of that kind of European story tell- gothic storytelling into an American psychological thriller-bent story. Um right. And, you know, you've got, you know, I mean, both of these films have Alma Revel uh, and her hands very much involved in this. And I do feel like I cannot wait to talk about Alma with um, our guest for that episode, because discussing things like this, it's clear that her touch is involved in a lot of those like a lot of the ones that people really hold in high regard. And in Shadow of a Doubt, I just feel like every everybody's firing on all cylinders in that movie. Like there's not a. There's not a frame in Shadow of a Doubt I would uh, remove, you know, right. and whatsoever. The, I think,
2: too, with Shadow of a Doubt, you're more, you're constantly kind of in this state of fear of, like, it's not safe, right? Like, the monster is in the house, and you don't know when it's going to strike. Yeah. Whereas with Strangers on a Train, you have some separation from the monster, and you feel like there's moments where you're safe. And you yeah. can kind of re, you know, reset um what's going on. Whereas that movie, you never really get a break. Like once she finds out who uncle Charlie is and he knows, she knows, it's just, you're, you know, you're now trapped in this space with her. Um, and that I think is done very effectively in that movie. And in a way that strangers on a train could never capture because it's a different setting and context. It's
0: more jet setty too. Like strangers on a train is a little bit more jet setty. And uh, And this, I think one one of the reasons why I may also prefer Shadow of a Doubt is I'm a big John Carpenter fan and one of the reasons I like Carpenter is because he creates a scale out of intimacy mm-hmm. and uh, in in Shadow of a Doubt there's we're, we are confined to this small town outside of the one scene at the beginning right. and we are just left in this world with these guys and like the mo- as you said the monster is inside and we don't know when he's going to strike and it's one of the perfect examples of you know what Hitchcock said? I fucked up with in *Sabotage* with the kid dying. This is mm-hmm. how the bomb goes off the right way. Right. <coughs> this is how the bomb goes off correctly, and it and it's it's masterfully that that fuse lasts all the way till almost the final moments of the movie. Right. Which is incredible. Um, so that will wrap it up for this noir discussion that we had. Uh, there was a lot of shadows in our discussion. We had a lot of c d characters we had a discussion about uh, uh how it affects this uh this land that we live in that's currently going through a, a different type of dark period um but, right <laughs> uh so but Aaron as always, thank you for coming down for this um you know depending on how the flow of everything goes, we can probably stick you in one more time uh before the series ends, but obviously you'll be back for more podcasting with me because I can't imagine not doing shows like this without you and uh, just your your insight into how you read film. It's it's it's, it's always a pleasure, sir.
2: Thanks. Yeah, I, I love being a part of it, and thanks for having me as always. Yeah, and uh, uh, happy to come on whenever to chat about films.
0: Oh yeah, and and don't worry, I'll have plenty for you down the line. <laughs> so uh, that's going to be it for the Shamley Silhouette this time around. You can find more uh, on the Shamley Silhouette at realnerdspodcast.com. dot com. Um, episodes will be coming out. Um, Uh, As of now, still twice a month, but I'm going to try to see if I can accelerate that a little bit further so that we can hit our end date, which might be Hitchcock's birthday. You never know, guys. Um, And uh, I'm going to work on some uh, revival of the articles um, as time is going on. I'd like to first get all the episodes in the can. Uh, On the next Shamley Silhouette, we're going to have another return guest. Um, He's known for uh, for his lengthy rhetoric. And we're, we've given him three more films to tackle, uh, and we're also going to have him talk about a classic Hitchcock film. So you'll get three misses in a hit. So, uh, But until Never. next time, good night. With all of
1: the splendid dignity I'm glad of you were able to come, Jack. I couldn't have faced it without someone I knew.
2: came into our community, and our lives
1: were I did know more. I couldn't tell you. I know. he thought the world was a horrible place couldn't have been very happy ever no. he didn't trust people seemed to hate them hated the whole world you know, he said that people like us had no idea what the world was really like that has, long after the well it's not quite as bad as that Sometimes it needs a lot of watching. Seems to go crazy every now and then. Like your Uncle Charlie. The beauty of their souls, the sweetness of their characters, live on with us forever.